0: Welcome to the finale of Skywave Audio Theatre for this year. I'm Norman Gilliland. The expression, any port in a storm, applies to Matt Dillon during a long ride on a winter day that quickly turns into a winter night, a long night. It may turn out that the weather isn't Matt's worst enemy, too. It'll be easy, all too easy, for Matt to know who his enemies are. But in close quarters, does he have a friend? Will he be one against three, or will it be two against two? We're going to find out in The Cabin. It's Gunsmoke from December twenty seventh, 1952.
1: Around Dodge City and in the Territory on West, there's just one way to handle the killers and the spoilers, and that's with a U.S. Marshal and the spell of Gunsmoke. Gunsmoke, starring William Conrad. The story of the violence that moved west with young America. The story of a man who moved with it. Matt Dillon, United States Marshal.
2: It was over a hundred miles back to Dodge, but I figured I could make it easy in a day and a half. I'd been in Hayes City as a government witness in a murder trial, and I was anxious to get back. So I rode out of Hayes one morning a couple of hours before light. The ground was clear as snow, but it was midwinter, and it was sharp cold. When the day came, there was no sun, only dark gray sky drilled by a high, cold, searching wind. The air was as thin as I could ever remember it being behind me in the north lay a great slab of blackness. When I saw that, I should have turned back, for the wind stood out of the north, too, and sooner or later it would drive that black slab right down on top of me. This was blizzard weather, the kind of weather that kills the land and everything on it. I don't know why I went on, maybe because of the wind. You know, a high wind will distemper a man, make him drunk-like, Anyway, I didn't turn back. And About noon, the sky began to turn white with snow, and I could smell a touch of moisture in the air. And finally it came, the sleet, shrilling in on the wind like small buckshot as the blizzard howled down the prairie. I couldn't look right or left without being stung blind, but as long as I kept the wind on my back, I knew I was headed south. Two hours of this, and I could feel my horse slowing down and weakening under me. My own body stiffened with the cold. Men died when they got caught in a thing like this. They died easy. Another hour passed, and my horse was carrying his head close to the ground. I figured he'd stumble soon, so I kicked my feet out of the stirrups and braced myself against the horn. By now, the wind had really gotten into me. And when I saw the blur of a ranch house up ahead, I thought maybe it was a trick. But a
1: few minutes later we rounded a corner of the place and... stood at last in the lee of the storm. I slid down... and got up to the door... and pounded on it. And I waited. Then I pounded again. Then the door came open... and the figure stood in the light.
3: Who are you? Bring him in,
2: Albie. Any man out in that weather's been made harmless?
3: Get inside.
2: Out of the way, Alvy, you fool. All right, stranger. Hands in the air. Hi. That's better. Unload him, Albie.
4: Nice
3: gun, Hack. Real nice gun.
2: Shut up. Now, take him down, stranger. You can come up to the stove now, but don't try nothing. I'll cut you in half with buckshot. He was a burly man with flushed cheeks and a wild red beard and a great shock of red hair. Even his hands and fingers bristled with it. He sat on a stool by the stove, a shotgun across his knees. And his eyes never left me. The other one, Alvy... Had a body of an underfed boy, but he was completely bald, and his skin was tight and dry. He looked like a naked skull, and his eyes, well, something had touched, Alvy. You look half-froze, stranger. You must have wanted something real bad to go out in weather like this.
3: I never saw him around here before, Hack. He's a stranger, Alvy. He don't belong around here course we don't know anybody but I, I i seen a few and i never seen him before maybe he's seen you alvey
2: somewhere not me he, he
3: never saw me nowhere how do you know that maybe he was just looking for some cows and got lost in the storm
2: you're just a kid alvey always said you don't know much bell bell get on out here she was a pretty girl but with a dark, half-wild look that I'd never seen before in a woman. Her eyes jumped from man to man and then came to rest on me, fixed and curious. And then after a moment, she looked away and moved into a chair across the room.
3: Supper ready, Bell? It's awful cold
2: out. You recognize him, Bell? You ever see him before?
5: Nope.
2: You're sure now? Maybe Hayes City... Maybe you saw him up there sometime. I don't know him. You sure? Yes. If you're lying to me, you know what I'll do to I you.
3: never saw him before. He come in here half-froze, right, right out of the blizzard. Must have been looking for some cows and got lost. Shut up, Albie. We don't know what he's doing here,
2: Belle.
5: Why shouldn't a man get out of the storm? Even in here.
2: That's enough. All right, stranger, we never saw you before. We don't know who you are. And as soon as I think you're lying, I'm going to blow a big hole in you. What about my horse? I'd like to put him in the barn if you've got one. Alvy?
3: Oh, now, Hack, I ain't going out there. I'd freeze. And the horse will freeze if you don't. It's his horse. We might need it. Go on, Alvy,
2: before I get cross.
3: All right, I'll go. I don't
2: know why a horse is so important. (laughs) Helvey's a good boy. He'll put your horse up. Thank you.
5: Supper's about ready.
2: Leave it. I want to talk to our friend here first. Maybe we won't have to feed him.
5: Potatoes will get mealy.
2: They better not, that's all. I'm right curious about you, mister. I've noticed that. I'll blow your guts all over the wall. You make fun of me. Don't get me mad, mister. I got the shotgun.
5: The meat will be boiled to shreds if we don't eat soon.
2: You just won't understand any other way, will you, Belle? What is it you want to know about me? (laughs) I can tell, mister, I can handle you easy now. What do you mean? All I got to do is wallop the girl and you'll talk. I don't have to do nothing to you. All right, if I take my jacket off. I've warmed up now. I mind. You might have a gun hit out in there.
5: He can raise his hands. I'll unbutton it.
2: Well, now that's right smart of you, Bell.
5: Oh. I'll hide it.
2: No. Leave it be. Bell. Come over here, Bell. Drop the jacket, Bell. Now hold out your other hand. Now open it, Bill. Open your hand. That's real bad what you did, Bell. Real bad. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to put you outside for a spell out in the weather. After supper, after you've cleaned up supper, you can be thinking about it till then. United States Marshal. You're in bad company, Marshal. You shouldn't have come here. Oh? Uh-huh. looks to me like I sort of struck gold coming here. Now, why do you talk like that, Marshal? I still got the shot. <gasps> Let me get that stone. <sighs>
1: Seems like it's
2: getting colder and colder. You didn't see a sign of nobody outside, did you, Alvi? What? Who? Somebody might have come along to cover the marshal here, It's all. Marshal?
3: What, what, what marshal?
2: Me. I'm a marshal, Alvy.
3: Shoot him, Hack. Shoot him. Shut up and answer me.
2: Was there sign of another horse footprints, anything like that? Ah. Oh, I
3: didn't see nothing.
2: Maybe you didn't look. Would I have walked in here the way I did if I'd been after you people? Maybe your head got muddled with the cold. Where'd you ride from, marshal? Hayes City. Left there this morning. <laughs> It was a fool thing to do with a blizzard coming up. Maybe. Did you think you could get the jump on us easier in a storm? Was that it, Marshal?
3: Yeah. You knew we'd be trying to keep cozy in here. I'm curious,
2: Hack. What are you and Alvy on the run for?
3: Don't you tell him, Hack. I don't trust him at all. (laughs) Alvy, it'd be mighty dull without you, boy.
4: (laughs) Don't laugh at me, Hack. Now stop it.
3: I don't like laughing. You know that, Hack. And don't you do it no more. I
2: got ways. Yeah, I ain't seen you and your ways. But don't try them on me, Alvy. Maybe I won't. Look, Alvy, now you don't understand. It's all right to tell the Marshal about us. He ain't going nowhere. No? No, of course not. We'll kill him, Alvy. We'll kill him and bury him somewhere.
3: Oh, uh, sure. Now, now, why didn't I think of that?
2: Because I do the thinking for us, Alvy, that's why. Now, what was it you like to know, Marshal? Stop playing games, Hack. Me and Alvy are wanted for murder. Up in Cheyenne, Wyoming. Seems a mite unfair, though. We didn't aim to kill nobody. It just happened that way.
3: We was robbing a bank.
2: Yeah, and a couple of the people there wouldn't do what we told them, so Alvy used his knife
3: on one, but it just made the man holler. You could hear him all over town. And we had to shoot our way out after that. Must have killed three or four people. I know I killed two.
2: Worst of it was, Marshal, all we wanted just then was some money. We didn't care about killing anybody. But you know how it is, Marshal, when you're robbing a bank and all. Yeah, sure. (laughs) Now, I don't suppose you do it that. Anyway, we're wanted for murder, and we didn't even get any money. Nary a dollar. So we rode out here and lighted for a spell. I see. What about Belle? And whose place is this, anyway?
5: My place, now that Pa's gone.
2: You mean you were living here alone? No. They killed your Pa, is that it? Yes. How long ago?
5: I don't know. Maybe a month.
2: Yeah, it's been about a month, hasn't it, Alvy?
5: 35
2: days. There, you see? Alvy always knows just how long everything's been. Now that's fine. Tell me, what'd you do with him? Who? The old man. Oh, we, we buried him out back. We <laughs> couldn't afford a funeral, <laughs> could we, Alvy?
3: Hack.
2: Hack, Hack, we told him that... Now let's shoot him. No, no, I've been thinking it over. People in Hayes City know he started for dodge, and when he don't show up, they might come looking for him. But you
3: you said we'd bury him, Hack. That's what you said. Yeah,
2: that's right, but we can't bury his horse, too. Not in this ground. It's froze solid. And if we turn the horse loose and they find it and can't find the marshal's body, then they'll suspect something. You're pretty smart, Hack. Too bad you don't know enough to stop killing people. Too bad for you, anyway.
3: Well, what are we going to do, Hack? I'm getting hungry.
5: That supper won't be fit to eat Shut up!
3: One more word out of you, Bella, and I'll whoop you good.
2: Come on, Hack, I'm really hungry. No, no, listen to me, Alvy. Now, my idea is to knock the marshal on the head and throw him outside to freeze. Now, he'll keep real good that way. And when the storm breaks, we can carry him off 20 miles or so and dump him on the ground. Look like he got throwed and hit his head and froze.
3: That's fine, Hack. That's just fine.
2: Then we'll break his horse's leg, make it easier for them to find him. You just don't care about anything, do you, Hack?
3: Just me. Sometimes, Albie. Sure. Me and Hack are are friends, ain't we, Hack?
2: Of course, if it don't want snowing, we'll have to think of something else. Can't leave tracks for
3: them to follow back there. Oh, Hack, ain't we gonna kill him now? Sure, sure we are, Albie. I didn't mean that. Let me hit him, huh? You keep the gun on him, and I'll get up behind and hit him. There was a Brandon iron around here somewhere. I'll hit him with that.
2: Hack, you have sunk pretty far, but I'm sort of wondering just how far. What do you mean? I'm wondering if you're low enough to kill a man before he's been fed.
3: Here. Here it is, Hack. Here, see? I found it.
2: Leave it be, Alvy. We're
3: going to eat first.
1: We will return for the second act of Gunsmoke in just a moment, but first... This Sunday night, Lionel Barrymore is your host and Joseph Cotton the star on Sunday Night Playhouse's gripping historic drama based on the life of Peter Marshall. Hear how a Scottish immigrant lad rose to the position of chaplain of the United States Senate. A story you'll agree is far more fascinating than fiction. Remember, it's tomorrow night when Lionel Barrymore introduces another Sunday Night Playhouse on most of these same CBS radio stations. Now for the second act of Gun Smoke.
2: It was only five in the afternoon, but the blizzard had darkened the land, and its blackness showed in at the windows. Here and there along the walls of the ranch house, tricklets of snow blew in through the warped timber. In the kitchen, Hank sat directly behind me while I ate. Later changed places with Alfie and fed himself heartily, as though he had nothing at all on his mind. Hank was just a nerveless brute, born with no conscience at all. His intelligence was the instinct of an animal that snapped at or killed whatever got in its way of survival. Every living thing was his enemy. And Alvy? Well, there was no way to figure Alvy. Too much of him was missing. My only chance lay in the girl, Belle, even though Hack had pretty well beaten all resistance out of her. Supper was over soon enough, but Hack seemed in no particular hurry to get on with his plans. I've eaten better food on the trail, Nat.
5: Can't blame me for it.
2: Now, get it cleaned up, Bell. You can talk your head off when you're outside alone, and you're going outside. I'll learn you to heal if I have to break your neck.
5: No,
3: don't do that, Hack. Not till we're ready to pull out, anyway. Why? Well, I ain't going to do the cooking. Well, I hope not. I've eaten your cooking. My sister was a good cook. Yeah, we should have brought her along, Alvy. No. no. I don't like her.
2: Where are you from, anyway? Which, me or I'll you, to start with. Wyoming, place called Crowhart. I didn't stay there long, though. What about you, Alvy? Yeah, now, where were you born, Alvy? I never did know.
3: Republican River. <laughs> That's not a place, you fool. Well, that's what they told me. Republican River. They always lived in a wagon, my ma and pa. Had a lot of kids, too. Of course, most of them died. I'm about the only one that made out any good at all.
2: And you did fine. I'll be fine. <coughs> uh, give me the shotgun. Yeah. All right, Marshal, let's get back by the stove while Bell cleans this mess up.
3: Sure, we hit him and... Throw him out to freeze up now, Hack?
2: Not yet. I don't want to
3: punish Bell
2: first. You know, someday you're going to get caught without that shotgun, Hack. Somebody's going to tear you apart. That's fair enough, Marshal. Give me a fair chance at you then, huh? Bare handed? No. Oh, you're bigger than I am, Hack. Might be fun for you. I don't know nothing about fun. I ain't going to kill you because it's fun.
3: Oh, come on, Hack. I want to go to bed. Bell!
2: Bell, come out here. Get outside like I told you. And don't open that door so wide you'll blow the lamp out. Bell had walked through the room and out the door without a glance at any of us. I figured she'd go down to the barn where she'd be all right for a little while anyway. But I knew I'd have to make a move soon. I sure wasn't going to sit there like a fall hog and let Alvy knock me in the head whenever he got ready. But it didn't take much more sense to try to jump Hack and that shotgun and let him blow me all over the place. It was a beggar's choice, and the more I thought about it, the matter I got.
3: Uh, Heck, I'm sleepy. I'm going to hit him and go to bed. You can do what you want after, but I ain't staying up all night.
2: Alvy's got his mind made up, Marshal, I can tell. Just what do you call his mind, Heck?
3: I got ways to fix you, Marshal. Nah,
2: never mind, Alvy. Wrap something around that iron, otherwise it won't look like he hit his head on a rock.
3: What difference it makes? Do what I say, Alfie. All right, Hack. Here, I'll use this curtain.
2: Now, keep your eyes on me, Marshal. Alfie moved around behind me and was getting a good grip on his brand and iron. I leaned slightly forward in the chair and was tensed and waiting for the split second when my instinct had told me to jump. And then suddenly the door was flung wide open and the wind roared in, almost lifting the room as it came. The lamp flared and then went out as I plunged sideways from the chair.
4: Ah! Didn't you hit him, Albie? Didn't you hit him?
2: Ah, You bloody fool. Don't you try nothing, Marshal. I got some more shells right here. Don't you move now. I crawled across the room and was off the door before Hack could reload. In the snow outside,
1: I stood up and turned to find Belle waiting by the side of the door, a pitchfork in her hand. I couldn't see her face very well in the dark, but I could tell she was shaking with cold. I
2: reached out and took the fork from her and then flattened myself against the wall and waited.
5: I was afraid it was you he shot.
2: That was a smart trick, Belle, throwing the door open that way.
5: He shot Alvy, didn't he? Yeah. Good.
2: I think he's found out I'm not in there. What are you going to do? Wait.
6: Marshal. Marshal. I'm going to kill you and the girl both now.
2: I waited, praying he'd come through the door before my hands got too cold to hold the pitchfork. And finally, the barrel of the shotgun appeared waist high and began to focus way around in our direction. It was stupid of him, but the man behind a gun often gets a false sense of power. I let him shove it out three or four inches, and then I... Slammed down
1: on me. Then I jumped into the room. Axe tried to club me with a gun, but he missed it. And I got in under him with a fork and lifted him off his feet. And he struggled for a moment like a spearfish and then went limp. And I let him fall. One of the
2: prongs had reached his heart.
5: Did you... Get him, Marshal. Is he dead?
2: Yeah. I'll Light the lamp.
5: I can't do it, Marshal. My fingers are too
4: stiff.
7: Here, I'll I'll do it.
4: There.
2: Yeah. Quite a mess in here. Why don't you wait in the kitchen, Belle?
5: I'm all right, Marshal. But I can't help you much till I get warmed up some.
2: Well, then, you stay by the stove, huh? I'll lug these people outside.
5: Thank you, Marshal. Marshal
7: Dillon. What? Oh.
2: Morning, Belle.
5: Come on out in the kitchen, Marshal. It's warm there and I got some hot coffee waiting.
2: Uh, that sounds good. Uh, I say, it looks like the storm's lifted.
5: It has. The wind's gone, but it's mighty cold out.
2: Well, I don't mind the cold. It's that wind that breaks a man down.
5: There. Get some of that in you.
2: Ah. You make mighty good coffee, Belle.
5: (laughs) Tell me something, Marshal. Hmm? Tell me the truth now.
2: Oh, sure, Belle. What is it?
5: Are you married?
2: I'd make a... Poor husband, Bell, for any woman. Why? Well, in my profession it's it's too chancy.
5: Thank you, Marshal. Thanks for putting it that way.
2: Now, Bell, I, I didn't mean
5: forget that... it. I'm leaving this place, Marshal.
2: What? As
5: soon as you go, I've packed what I need and I'm clearing off.
2: Well, where'll you go?
5: I got three horses. I'll ride up to Hayes City and sell them. Then what? I'll buy some pretty clothes. And... and I'll find a place. Won't be hard after this.
2: I, uh... I wish I could help you, Belle. You have. Oh, but I mean... Uh... I
5: can take care of myself, Marshal. I just want to get away from here, that's all.
2: Sure. Uh, I'll stop at the nearest ranch and tell the men to come over here and take care of Hack and Alvy as soon as it warms up.
5: Whatever you like, Marshal.
2: <laughs> well... <laughs> goodbye, Belle.
5: Goodbye, Marshal. Look me up in Hay City next time you're there.
2: Sure. Sure I will. But... Uh, Belle, don't let all this make you bitter... There are a lot of good men in the world.
5: So they say. So long, Marshal.
2: I, uh. So long, Bell. A few minutes later, I'd saddled up and was on the trail to Dodge. The sky was low and a slate gray all over, but there was no wind. The blizzard had gone, leaving the land still and white and bitter cold. There wasn't a sign of life anywhere. It was like riding through a vast tomb. And I found myself feeling like a trespasser as though something had gone wrong. And I wasn't supposed to be there at all.
1: Gunsmoke. Under the direction of Norman MacDonald stars William Conrad as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal. Tonight's story was specially written for Gunsmoke by John Meston, with music composed and conducted by Rex Corey. Featured in the cast were John Daner as Hack, Harry Bartell as Elvie, and Vivi Janis as Belle. Gunsmoke is heard by our troops overseas through the facilities of the Armed Forces Radio Service. Join us again next week. As Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal, fights to bring law and order out of the wild violence of the West in Gunsmoke. Mm -hmm. Starts this Monday, a new run for Road of Life. Returning to CBS Radio to join the rest of your daytime listening favorites at the star's address. Road of Life telling the day-to-day story of surgeon-scientist Dr. Jim Brent will keep your interest at a high point every Monday through Friday on most of these same stations. Remember, starting this coming Monday, Road of Life in its 16th year will be heard again on CBS Radio. Roy Rowan speaking. America now listens to 105 million radio sets and listens most to the CBS Radio Network.
0: Rough conclusion to the year for Matt Dillon, even rougher for Alvy and Hack. But then you probably had a good idea that they would be coming to a bad end with Matt and Belle eager to set things right. The name of the story? The Cabin. It was Gunsmoke from December 27, 1952, with a scene that was kind of reminiscent of a scene in the movie True Grit, the second movie of True Grit. We're going to drop back 16 years and pick up the Jack Benny Show next here on Skywave Audio Theater. In the 1920s and early 30s, high tenor voices were fashionable and a member of the Vitaphone Chorus at Warner Brothers filled the bill for the Jack Benny Show. Kenny Baker started on the show in 1935. He was a replacement for Frank Parker, who was so popular that when he left the show, a lot of people thought that Benny would lose a Good chunk of his audience, but Baker won them over quickly and, in fact, became even more popular than Parker. Add a takeoff of a popular Western, Phil Harris and his orchestra, Mary Livingston, Andy Devine, and Don Wilson, and you have the Jack Benny Show from December
6: 27, 1936.
8: J E L L O! The Jello program, starring Jack Benny with Mary Livingston and Phil Harris and his orchestra. The orchestra opens the program with Hallelujah from Hit the Deck. Just a few more days now before we see the old year out and before we usher in the new. Just a few more days to decide on your New Year resolutions. And if you haven't as yet discovered what a wonderfully useful, truly delicious dessert Jell-O is, I hope you'll make a resolution to try it for 1937. You can serve Jell-O in 101 different ways. You'll find each one of them exceptionally enjoyable. For Jell-O not only brings variety to your menus, it also brings the grand, refreshing taste of fresh fruit. Because all six of Jell-O's famous flavors, strawberry, raspberry, and cherry, orange, lemon, and lime, come from real, ripe fruit. So for better tasting, more satisfying desserts throughout the new year, serve Jell-O and serve it often. But remember, there is only one Jell-O, and only Jell-O brings you that extra-rich fruit flavor. When you want Jell-O, be sure you get the real thing. Always insist on genuine Jell-O. From Hit the Deck. And now, ladies and gentlemen, Christmas being over, we are left with broken ornaments, tattered tinsel, burned out bulbs, and Jack Benny. Uh, Hello
9: again, this is Jack Benny talking, a fugitive from an ash can. (laughs) Well, Don, you can say anything you wanted today. I'm in a holiday mood and nothing can upset me. Not even that Christmas tie you're wearing.
8: Well, it is a little loud, isn't it?
9: A little loud. Don, you could spill any one of those six delicious flavors on it and they'd never show. (laughs) (laughs) You should have gotten smoked glasses with it Oh, it isn't that bad, Jack Why don't you exchange it? I can't, my wife gave it to me Oh, your wife gave it to me, would she squawk? Would she? She's louder than the tide (laughs) Well, (laughs) then you are in a spot You just have to grin and wear it
8: Now, tell me, Jack, did you get a lot of nice presents this year?
9: Well, yes, in a way uh, Mary gave me a silk muffler
8: My sister Florence
9: sent me a woolen muffler and then I got some assorted mufflers from my Aunt Molly. Oh, that's that so? Oh, yes. In fact, my neck had a very Merry Christmas. Oh, Wish I were a giraffe so I could wear all my presents. That's yeah, an idea. Now, what did you get from your dad? Oh, my father. Mm-hmm. Uh, he gave me a checkbook and a fountain pen.
4: <laughs>
9: Touching, isn't it, Doc? Uh, yes, Very. <laughs> I'm sending him a muffler. (laughs) But you know, Don, the only problem I had was picking out a gift for Mary. Oh, is that so? Yes, I didn't know what to do. I was going to, I don't know, take so long to have it made up. (laughs) So I bought her some handkerchiefs. Oh, I see. (laughs) Yeah, you can get those made up pretty quick. eh? But you know, Don, of all the presents I got, the one I like best is that beautiful watch Phil Harris gave me. Mm, It is lovely. So that reminds me, Jack, Phil's late again tonight. I think he should have got himself a watch. Now, wait a minute, Don. You lay off, Bill, with those innuendos. He's my pal, and don't be talking behind his back. But you used to. Now, furthermore, if he comes in late, that's his business. I get it. Yeah. Hello, Jack. Hi, Kenny. Say, how do you like this pretty necktie my girl knitted for me? Well, it's very nice. Only the first tie I've ever seen with sleeves on it. (laughs) It's the the craziest looking thing.
8: Well, she started out to knit a sweater, but changed her mind.
4: (laughs)
9: I see. Uh, That's a pretty stick pin you've got in it, too.
8: That's the needle. She forgot to take it out.
4: Oh.
9: (laughs) What else did you get, Kenny? Gee, I got one spoil present. What was it? A pajama coat with two pair of pants. (laughs) What, no vest? (laughs) No. No, I'm pretty rugged. (laughs) Oh, sure. No, you're the uh, you're the type who can take it.
10: You? Hello, Jack. Hello, Mary. Hello, Don.
9: Hello, Mary. Hello,
10: dope. Hello. <laughs>
9: what have you got there, Mary?
10: Uh, a letter from my mother. She had a wonderful Christmas, Jack.
9: She did, huh? Well, read it to us. Your mother's always good for a laugh.
4: <laughs>
10: okay.
9: Yeah.
10: Uh, Plainfield, New Jersey, Saturday, December 26th. My dear daughter, Mary.
9: Hmm, no laughs yet. (laughs)
10: Well, it takes Ma a little time to get hot.
9: Oh, I (laughs) see. Well, go ahead. Uh,
10: Just a line to let you know that we are all well and had a wonderful Christmas. I got a lot of beautiful presents. Your father gave me a washing machine with a built-in radio. (laughs) Uh, Isn't he thoughtful? Mm -hmm, Yes. Uh, Right now, I'm waltzing through your father's underwear. (laughs) Uh, while Bing Crosby is singing, soap gets in your eyes.
4: Well,
9: well.
10: Uh, Uh, Sunday night, I am going to wash Father's socks and listen to Jack.
9: That's nice, but she might have mentioned me before the socks.
10: Quiet. Oh. Uh, there's been a lot of excitement at the house lately. Your Uncle Herman was here for Christmas dinner. He arrived July 3rd.
4: (laughs)
9: I guess he wanted to be sure and get a seat. Uh,
10: Your brother, Hillard, is home for the holidays from Barber College. Oh. And last night, while your Uncle Herman was asleep, he shaved off his mustache and upper lip. Oh. Some trouble? (laughs) (laughs) Your uncle says that as soon as Hillard comes down from the Christmas tree, he is going to give him a once-over with a baseball bat.
9: Well, I don't blame him, huh?
10: I forgot to tell you in my last letter that Junior had to stop taking piano lessons. Oh. Uh, the teacher couldn't tell when his fingers were on
9: the black keys. <laughs> Your mother's awfully funny tonight. Huh?
4: <laughs>
10: Uh, no more news at present, except your father just came in and wants me to be sure to thank Jack for the muffler he sent him. Oh, that's
9: all right, Mary. Tell him. That's a love all
10: right. to everybody and a happy new year from your mother, Missus Livingston. Well,
9: that was a
8: very nice letter from. Oh, uh, Mary, uh, when you answer your mother, will you ask her if she topped off their Christmas dinner with jello?
10: Oh, oh wait a minute. Here's a P.S.
8: Funny you didn't see it before.
10: It was under a blot.
9: Oh, I see. <laughs>
10: Uh, tell Don Wilson not to worry, as we have Jello every night.
9: You see, Don? Yeah, that's Your great. father
10: always asks for the big red letters on the box, even though he can't read.
9: <laughs> you hear that, Don? My, uh, Mary's mother saved you a little work. Oh, shucks. Now I won't have fun till after the next number. Yeah. Say, Kenny, as long as my pal Phil isn't here yet, uh, you'll have to go into your song now.
6: Gee, Jack, I'm not supposed to sing until later.
9: Well, Phil isn't here. You'll have to sing now.
6: But I'm not ready yet. Oh,
9: you're not, eh? Well, you'll sing before I count ten. One, two, three, four, five. Well, here
10: he
4: comes, ready or not?
9: Try to put a fast one over on
4: him.
6: So proper and polite upon this lovely night. We sit here making foolish conversation Let's be ourselves tonight And take on shining bright And take advantage of the situation The
4: night
6: is young And you're so beautiful here Beautiful lady Open your heart The scene is set The breeze is sing of it Can't you get into The swing of it Lady When do we When the lady and the evening is cool. Any dream is permissible.
9: and You Are So Beautiful, sung by Kenny Baker, accompanied by the Phil Harris organization without their sterling leader at the helm. Has Phil arrived yet, Don? No.
10: Say, Jack, are you going to ball out Phil for being late?
9: Ball him out?
10: Yes, like he used to before he bought you that watch.
9: (laughs) Well, that watch has nothing to do with our renewed friendship. I've always liked Phil. Of course, there were times when we didn't see things in the same light, but then there are two sides to every watch. I mean question. (laughs) And furthermore, I don't want any more references to the present Phil gave me. Is that clear?
10: Yes, and what time is it?
9: Don't be so smart. (laughs) (laughs) What's the matter, Kenny? My new necktie tickles me under the (laughs) arm. Oh. Come in. Jellogram for Tack Benny. (laughs) Right here, son, and stick to your own racket. Who's it from, Jack? Well, wait till I open it. <laughs> what is this, a cheesecloth envelope?
10: Better get glasses. That was your shirt. Oh.
4: <laughs>
9: oh, hey, fellas, here's a lovely New Year's wire from New York. It says, here's wishing you and your gang a very happy New Year. Signed, Fred Allen, Phil Baker, Stoop Nagel and Bud, Jessica Dragonette... Rubinoff and his violin. Jack Pearl, the Easy Aces, Benny Rubin, and the Hall Johnson Choir. Isn't that sweet? Gee, they must have all chipped in to send the wire. Yeah.
10: I wonder who swung the deal.
9: Yeah, I'm surprised Ed Wynn didn't get his name in there.
10: He didn't have to. You just mentioned it.
9: <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's right. Hey, Jack, Jack, here comes Phil now.
4: Well, hello,
9: Philzy. you, pal. Hello, Jack. I'm terribly sorry I'm late again, but I forgot I was on the Jell-O program. Oh, that's all right, Phil. That could happen to anybody.
4: <laughs>
9: Gee, if it was me, I'd bet I'd get balled out. Hey, wait a minute, Kenny. Phil admitted he was late, didn't he? That's what I like about him. He shows character. Thanks, Jack. Phil tells the truth. And I hold him in the same high esteem as I do George Washington.
10: Did he give you a watch, too?
4: And by the way,
9: Phil, I want to thank you again for that beautiful watch you gave me. Yeah, I've shown it to everybody. Did you see it, Kenny? Yeah. You saw it, Don, down, didn't you? I sure did. Gee, I've been showing it around like this all week. Oh, boy. You know, Phil, the only thing that worries me is I, I might lose it.
10: You won't if he keeps up the payments. <laughs>
9: Well, he will. I'm not worried about that. Say, palsy. Yes, (laughs) walsy. You know, I I feel quite embarrassed about the present I gave you last Sunday. That that curling iron. Uh, (laughs) What? You know, just a little oldie curling iron. What'd you do? (laughs) What'd you do with it, Phil? Oh, it's swell. I gave it to my cook to make pretzels. (laughs) Well, that's a new twist. Ooh. Well, anyway, I do want to make up for it, so I got another gift for you. Here it is, Phil, a beautiful muffler. Oh, thanks, Jack, but you didn't have to do that. Oh, no, it's okay. Mmm, and a card, too. Merry Christmas from Aunt Molly. Oh, give me that, Phil. Wait a
4: minute.
9: I, I got mixed up with it. Sorry. I, I just sort of got mixed up there. Well, anyway, it's about time for a number. What are you going to play? Anything you say, Jackie. No, no, Phil, it's your orchestra and your choice. <laughs> well, would you like to hear a fine romance? Would I? Say, so, hey, it that would be ideal.
10: Ain't love grand. Yeah. <laughs> See, I
9: hope he asked me over to his
4: house for pretzels.
9: <laughs> fine romance played by Phil Harris and his orchestra, as fine a bunch of musicians as you can shake a stick at. You know, Phil, it's surprising the melody, rhythm, and tone you can draw from that little baton. Did you take baton lessons long? No, Jack, I just picked it up. Well, you
4: <laughs> never
9: believe it. It's amazing, really.
4: <laughs>
9: it's my turn for compliments now, Jackie.
4: Yeah. <laughs> You
9: know, I saw the preview of your new Paramount picture, College Holiday. Oh, did you? Uh, how did you like me as a college boy? Well, Jack, but you look so young. I did, eh? Uh? <laughs>
10: the old gray hair ain't what it used to be. <laughs>
4: oh,
9: you—you uh, you saw the picture too, eh, Mary? Yeah. Uh, how'd you like my performance in it?
10: Mm, uh, do you really want to know?
9: No. And now, ladies and gentlemen,
4: <laughs> uh, we
9: are going to continue. Go away, Mary. Uh, we are going to continue
4: <laughs> with our. Uh, we are going
9: to continue with our original western serial, Buck Benny Rides Again, or Boy Meets Horse.
4: <laughs> Again,
9: I will play the part of Sheriff Buck Benny as tough an hombre as ever held up a pair of socks with a garter snake.
4: <laughs> West it on you tonight, boys. <laughs>
9: A rootin', tootin', hootin', shootin'.
4: You said it. <laughs> we
9: are still hot on the trail of Cactus Face Elmer, the outlaw who stole Frank Carson's cow. The scene opens in the office of the sheriff of Cactus County. The time is 11:30 p.m. New Year's Eve. But don't set your watches, folks. It's only in the play. Curtain. Music. <laughs>
8: There's the phone, Sheriff. There's the phone,
9: Sheriff. Thanks, boys. Only I could have figured that out myself.
4: <laughs>
9: hello, Sheriff's Office. Oh, hello, Dead What's the trouble? Someone stole your telephone?
4: Well, what are you talking on now? <laughs> oh, you never thought of that, eh? Well,
8: think of it. Goodbye.
9: Hmm, must be celebrating a little early.
8: Say, Buck, this being New Year's Eve, are you going to let the prisoners out for the night? Don't have to. Let them out last year. They ain't back yet. Can't even
9: trust your own crooks anymore. Around here.
4: Yippee! Wow! Zi-
9: Why, Deputy Baker, what's the matter?
6: That darn necktie is a tickling again.
4: <laughs> now, I'm gonna...
9: For a minute, I thought it was cactus face. Now, listen, Baker, I sent you out on this trail a week ago to get ba- back those stolen cows. Did you find any clues? I found one. What was it? A pint of milk on my doorstep. Well, that's very good evidence. Mark that exhibit, A. Eh? I can't. I drank it already. Hmm. i deputy. find a beauty. Say, Buck, you know
8: we're all invited over to Daisy Carson's house tonight to see the old year out.
9: That's right. I bet her Pappy will be celebrating plenty. He's been down to Ike Muller's saloon all week rehearsing. I saw him last night on Main Street. Yeah? Where was he laying? Right by the fireplug. By the fireplug, eh? Did you do anything about it? I give him a ticket. Well, you've seen your duty and you tagged it. Come on, boys, let's get over to Carson. Don't want to miss the festivities. Come, Come on, there.
4: Sheriff. Yeah.
9: Hey, Wilson, untie my horse and that microphone. Untie it yourself. Don't get snooty to beauty or I'll shoot him. Ouch. <laughs> let's go.
4: Yippee! yippee. Boys. Whoa! Whoa!
9: Whoa! <laughs> Tie up the horses, boys, and put a little gin in their oats. After all, it's New Year's. See you inside. Hello, Daisy.
10: Hello, Baggy Pants.
9: Well, gal, you're. Never mind. Let it go. (laughs) Say, Daisy, that some Christmas tree you got there sure is all lit up.
10: That's Pappy. The tree's in the other room.
9: Oh, Frank. Happy New Year. Same to you, Buck. Well, looks like the old year will be passing out pretty soon.
10: If it don't hurry up, Pappy will
9: beat it. Well, I ain't missed her yet. (laughs) Well... Well, Frank, fears like you had a nice Christmas. You hang up your stockings? Sure did, Buck. What well, was in them in the morning? I was. I forgot to take them off. <laughs> well. Well, oh, come in the parlor,
10: Buck, where the
9: crowd is. Okay, Daisy. My boys will be in in just a minute. <laughs> <laughs> well, hi, fellas. on, Buck. Happy New Buck.
6: Buck. Oh, Buck.
10: Oh, that's all
9: right, Flora Bell. Hey, Daisy, I see you hired a band for tonight.
10: Yep, I got the Cactus Center Society Syncopate and Paraneter Six Piece Orchestra.
9: It's a nice tuxedo they're wearing.
10: The one with the shoes on is
9: the leader.
4: Well, reckon you
9: can be high hat once a year. (laughs) (laughs)
4: Hello,
9: Buck. Glad to see you. Well, Sheriff Andy Devine, you old horn told you.
8: Well, how you been, Andy? Fine, Buck. And by the way, I want to thank you for that nice blanket you sent me. Blanket? That was a muffler. Well, my horse will never know the difference. <laughs>
4: Reckon
8: you're right. Well, uh, Buck, I got a little present for you, too. I, I brought it with me.
4: Well, thanks, Andy. What is it? What do you
8: got there? Well, it's one of them newfangled
6: alarm clocks. It's the latest invention. It is? Mm-hmm, yep, and instead of ringing you in the morning, it nudges you.
9: Well, that's mighty considerate. Thanks, Andy, thanks. Oh, you're welcome, Buck. What was that?
10: There goes Tappy's jug.
9: <laughs> well, well, that's too bad,
10: yeah. And there goes Happy.
4: <laughs>
9: well, reckon we'll all be seeing him next year.
10: <laughs> Say, Buck. You want something to eat? Don't
9: mind if I do, Flora Bell.
10: Well, try one of these sandwiches. They're the latest thing in Hollywood. Yeah, what's in them? Salmon, salmon.
4: <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll on that one. <laughs>
9: yes, sir?
10: Here, Buck, have some time
9: Thanks, Daisy. Hey, what's this swimming around in it?
10: Doggone, I told Pappy not to mix it in the goldfish bowl. <laughs>
9: hey, Daisy, now that you got a band here, how about little music, fellows and some singers? Yeah, I know. Okay. How about you, Pappy? Get up and sing. I can sing her from down here. <laughs> all right, boys. Strike up a tune. Come on, fellas.
10: Swing it. Sing it, Daisy. Hit it. When trouble troubles you, sing baby
4: sing. Do not the birdy do. sing baby sing. There, when cold it winter comes and they're all lot of crumbs, your little birdies are Yes, oh, tweet, tweet, Ho, ho, ho! Don't you know how fun it is? Sing, music, sing like that. I like your music with that certain swing. So wink while you sing, baby
9: Take it, Pappy, your next baby right from the floor. When
11: trouble troubles you,
9: sing, baby sing. Yes,
10: happy Do
9: like the birdies do, sing, baby sing. Yeah, when cold winter comes and they're all out of tune. Oh, little birdies, they ain't eating, <laughs> but they're sweet, sweet, sweet... Take it, deputy, oh, Wilson Oh, oh,
8: don't you know, a dish of Jell-O a day, Keeps mean old Mr. Gloom away. Everybody likes jello with those certain flavors, So swing while you eat, Take baby. it, Andy! you next, Andy,
4: take
6: it! we apple trouble, <laughs> you sing, baby, sing. Do You like the birdies, do sing, baby, sing. <laughs> the winter comes, and they're all out of some. The poor little birdies, they ain't
4: eating, but they're tweet, tweet, clean. clean, clean <laughs> right. Hold it, hold it, wait a minute,
9: hold everything. All right.
4: <laughs>
9: what happened is New Year Oh,
4: yippee, yippee, Well, friends, this
9: being 1937 I want to wish you all health, wealth, and prosperity
4: Hooray! Hooray!
9: And I want to say that I'm running for sheriff again this year
4: So am I
9: Stick to your own county, Andy <laughs> But I do want to say Come in post to Frank Carson Hey, it's for you, Frank Tuck it down here. Oh,
10: looks
4: like a Christmas present. Open it, Pappy.
9: Well, well, what a beautiful cowhide traveling bag. Are those your initials on it, Frank? No, that's the brand of my cattle. It is? Yeah, look, there's a note on it, Buck. Who's it from? Well, it's
4: from Captain Face Elmer. Captain Face Elmer? (laughs) Read it, Andy. (laughs) Dear Frank... Here's a Christmas
8: present made from the hide of one of your own cows that I stole. A Happy New Year to you, and nuts to Buck Benny.
9: (laughs) I hope they're walnuts. I love them. Where's the postmark from, Andy? Red Gulch Canyon. Red Gulch Canyon, eh? That's where his hideout is. Well, New Year's or no New Year's, I'm going to get them this time, boys. And I'm going to bring them back dead or alive. Buck Benny rides again!
8: This will continue next Sunday night. Will Buck get cactus face? Will (laughs) Pappy get off the floor? Will Andy be on our program? Listen in next Sunday night. Remember, same time, same place. And same plot. Play, boys. Years may come and years may go, but the popularity of chocolate pudding goes on forever. Everybody likes it, and when it's Jell-O chocolate pudding, it's even better liked than before, because Jell-O chocolate pudding tastes the way your grandmother's puddings used to taste. It's smoother, creamier, more chocolatey, and as simple as A, B, C to make. Just mix the contents of a package of Jell-O chocolate pudding with some milk in the top of your double boiler, and after about ten minutes, the mixture will be thick and luscious, satin smooth. Then let it cool and you're all ready to serve a grand chocolate pudding, mellow with the rich homemade flavor that everyone loves so well. Don't let another day pass without ordering some Jell-O chocolate pudding. It sells for the same low price as Jell-O, and there's enough in one package for six delicious servings. And if your grocer hasn't any Jell-O chocolate pudding in stock, be sure he orders it for you. That was the last number of the 13th program
9: in the new Jello series. Steady, partner. And we'll be with you again next Sunday night at the same time. Whoa, steady, partner. And once more, you will hear Buck Benny rides again. Sorry, folks. It just fell off my horse. I didn't think it was that funny. Good night, folks.
8: Thing is from the picture of the same name. The fine romance is from Swing Time. The night is young and you are so beautiful is from Casamagnano. The Jello program comes to you from Hollywood over the Red Network of the National Broadcasting Company. AFI Los Angeles. Ten seconds before nine o'clock.
0: That's how Jack Benny and his gang wrapped up 1936. The broadcast came from December 27th of the year. Three years later, Kenny Baker left the show and $3,000 a week salary because he was tired of playing that uh, callow, high-voiced youth. In 1939, when he left the show, Dennis Day, another high-voiced tenor, played the same kind of character. In later years, one of Jack's guests on the show was Ronald Coleman, and he's going to introduce a favorite story next here on Skywave Audio Theatre. In 1931, Lily Pons, a French singer, had a spectacular debut at New York's Metropolitan Opera, and from then on she sang mostly in the United States. She became a naturalized citizen of the United States in 1940, which was a good time not to be in her native land of France. With hundreds of Met performances to her credit, Lily Ponce would be a celebrity whose name was familiar to listeners to radio's Favorite Story. It's not surprising that a woman accustomed to the glamour of the stage would choose a story about beauty. This is Favorite Story with Change of Face from December 28, 1948.
12: This is Ronald Coleman, inviting you to radio's most dramatic half-hour, Favorite Story. (laughs) ¶¶ World famous coloratura soprano, Miss Lily Pons, has chosen as her favorite story a curious tale from the pen of Leonard Merrick: Change of Face. Here's Act One. There are many ancient legends concerning faces. Years ago, in a remote corner of China, so remote in fact that no one there had ever seen a mirror. One day, a traveler chanced to drop a mirror on the soft earth. The young farmer who picked it up was amazed when he looked at it. Why, this is
13: the face of my sainted father. I must rush home and show this remarkable picture to my
12: wife. So, with the treasure in his hand, he raced home and tremblingly showed it to his adored wife.
14: Oh, oh, so this is the horrible woman you've been going with behind my back.
12: But perhaps the greatest modern legend of faces took place in a hall of a thousand mirrors. <laughs> a masquerade ball in Paris. A young man danced half the night with a fascinating creature because from behind her mask the youthful tones of her voice were so enchanting, her tenderness so attractive. Oh, tell me. Please tell me who you
13: are.
15: No, I can't. I can't possibly tell you.
13: But why? Please unmask.
15: It's impossible.
13: But I'll never see you again if you won't tell me who you are.
15: If you saw my face, you would never want to see me again.
13: My dear child, my dear girl. It's your charm, your tenderness which attracts me. Your lovely, youthful voice.
15: Youthful? Yes, yes. Oh, now, I I must go.
13: No, please. I beg you, please unmask.
15: Very well. Look. (gasps) Yes the sunken face of an old, old woman.
12: In the same season, another young man pleaded with the girl for her love. A girl with a face so young, so beautiful, that he hardly noticed the strangeness of her voice, which was flat and feeble, like the voice of his grandmother.
13: Go away. Your face is so radiant, so young. I love you.
14: I outlived such emotions long ago. To tell you the truth, the subject sounds ridiculous to me.
12: These two incidents, peculiar as they are, were the outcome of an occurrence stranger still. It all began in front of a mirror, the dressing mirror of Madame de Valfleury in the city of Paris.
14: Creams, lotions, pomades, rouge, around the eyes. The eyes. Surely there's some way to remove the wrinkles. It. Oh, my neck, how it sags. More cold cream. It, it's no good. Mira just laughs at me. A foolish old woman trying to manufacture youngness. Lisette! Lisette!
5: Yes, madame. You call?
14: Take these away. All of them. They are useless. Madame. I'm sorry, Lisette. I I did not mean to make a mess. Oh, I shall help you pick them up. Oh, no, madame. I will do it. You must get ready for the ball. Oh, look, your new gown. You've never worn it. A new gown. Do you know I paid 5,000 francs for that? How lovely it looked on the modiste in the shop. I shall not wear it. Not wear it? No, not tonight or ever. You might as well hang it on a scarecrow. Oh, madame. Don't be kind to me. You have eyes. I have eyes, too. The mirror does not lie. I'm vain, Lisette. The vainest woman in the world. I was beautiful once. The most beautiful woman in Paris, and it's gone. I don't think I mourned as much for my dead husband as I mourned for my lost loveliness. Oh, Oh, madame. You must not talk like that. We all get old. Be grateful, Lisette, that you are never beautiful. So you can never know what it is to lose beauty. There are memories. Memories. Do you know what I see in that mirror, Lisette? The ghost of an empire. All Paris was mine. Even the women, great beauties themselves, turned around to gaze at me whenever I entered a room. How they must laugh now. Oh, God. Go to the door, whoever it is, tell them I'm not at home. I don't wish to see anyone. I believe I never wish to have a human being gaze at this face. Yes, madame. You. You in the mirror, who are you? I don't know you. Oh, why don't the years stand still while your face is still young? Madame. I told you I didn't want to be bothered, Lisette. Well, it is a young girl from the milliners. She says you dropped your brooch there. She has come to return it. My brooch. Oh, yes, my sapphire brooch. I I ripped it from my throat today as I looked at myself in the milliner's mirror. Such a lovely jewel against such a throat. And I rushed out and left it there on the floor. Uh, Have the girl come in. Yes, madame.
15: In here, young lady. Thank you.
14: You have found my brooch, I thank you. Naturally, I shall give you a reward. Thank you, madame. You're beautiful. Yes. I don't believe I've ever seen a face quite like yours. The eyes, the complexion, the, m- the modeling of the features, it's extraordinary. Thank you, madame.
15: But as you see from my clothes, I am very poor. Nobody looks at a face when a girl is dressed in rags. You work at the milliner's? Yes. As
14: a mannequin? No, as a cleaning girl. With a face like that? amazing you could make better money posing for artists. Perhaps, madame. But I know
15: only one honest way to make as much money as I want. You
14: see, I want a great deal. You mean to bet on the state lotteries?
15: No, madame. A better way. A more certain way. What might that be? Madame understands that I am very poor. A trifle to madame would be a great deal to me. I wish to earn a hundred thousand francs.
14: A hundred thousand francs? Oh, such a sum is not a trifle to anybody. If you hope to earn it by looking for more sapphires in dust heaps, you shall be a long time about it. Although I do owe you a reward, my dear child. Here, here, here are the two hundred francs. Oh,
15: thank you. They're they're more valuable than you imagine. For they shall pay my train fare and ultimately earn the hundred thousand francs.
14: You confuse me. How is this possible? Not roulette? uh, Oh, system perhaps you're going to Monte Carlo? Oh, no, madame. I I shall explain. I am sick of
15: poverty. I would far rather part with my face and gain wealth than remain beautiful and, and a beggar. You would far rather... What did you say? I am going to the face exchange, madame. The what? The face exchange. Madame has not heard of it? No. Of course, I may not be successful at striking the right kind of bargain. And then one must wait for the doctor to perform the necessary operation. But but something tells me I shall be fortunate. Why, that's... Such a place could not
14: exist. Such
15: an operation
14: could not be performed.
15: Ah, but it does exist, madame. And this is the most amazing man of science. A doctor, yet a
14: mystic. Why, such an idea takes one's breath away... What is this place called? Saint-Pierre-des-Champs, madame. Listen to me. I'm going with you. What? I don't believe it for a second, but the mere possibility of such a miracle completely fascinates me. If what you say is true, you needn't shop around for an exchange. Would you be willing to change faces with me? Why? I will not haggle with you. I will pay you what you want in addition to the train fare and the price of the operation. It is a large sum, but you shall have it. A hundred thousand francs. Well, I, I... I would have to think over the price, madame. But that's the figure you named. But
15: it is possible I might change with someone my own age. Naturally, I I should prefer that. What you don't suppose a young girl would pay a 100,000 francs? If she has youth already, what for? For beauty. There are many young girls who would
14: give anything to be lovely. But there won't be many living in a little village.
15: Oh, madame, there are many, many people who know of this place. And swarm there from all over France, all over Europe. Besides it... It might be better for me to take even 50,000 francs with a young face than 100,000 with... with one more mature. Oh, madame understands that I I am human. I am not indifferent to the other sex. If I sacrifice all my prospects of admiration, sweetheart's husband,
14: it is worth a great sum. What is your name, Charles? To madame. Listen to me. I will pay your railroad fare if you will go with me to this place. If what you say is true, we shall reach a financial settlement agreeable to both of us. Though I warn you, I will go no higher than 120,000 francs. Madame, may
15: I look closely at your face?
14: Yes. Look. Madame...
15: I shall trade faces with you for 120,000 francs.
12: Late one evening, the old woman and the young girl arrived in the strange village of Saint-Pierre-des-Champs, hurrying past the marketplace, both trembling in the moonlight.
15: Has the train trip tired you?
14: Yes, but no matter. When I have your faith, I shall be young again. And then I shall never be tired. I'm sorry the train was so slow. how strange this is. Like a bad nightmare. Quickly, let us go to this doctor's. Let's finish our business. (laughs) And this can be accomplished, doctor? Such a thing is
16: actually possible. Yes, it is possible. Oh, well, then set a time immediately. I cannot remodel a face. I merely exchange them. You have someone you wish to trade with?
14: Yes. Yes, this young girl.
16: Ah. Oh, how sad. How very sad.
14: Please. I will pay you well. But I do not ask you to pity her. My face is wrinkled, but it is not without some beauty. Oh,
16: my dear lady, I am not pitying this child. I am pitying you.
14: What? I do not understand. <laughs>
16: Perhaps you will someday.
14: Uh, the exchange. Tell me quickly, when will it be performed? Oh,
16: tomorrow at dawn, if you like. <laughs> you can greet the new day with a new face. Oh, tell me, would you like my special rate? Two changes are more reasonable than one. Two? Why would I want two? Oh, my customers invariably return. <laughs>
12: We're ready for act two of Change of Face by Leonard Merrick, the favorite story of Miss Lily Ponce. (laughs) We live in a world of fantasy, where the line between dreams and reality is sometimes hard to determine. The two women, the old one and the young one, lay on two white tables in the doctor's office in the strange village of Saint-Pierre-des-Champs. It was dawn, and each had a new face. The exchange was accomplished. (sighs) Wake up, my lovely one. (laughs) It's a brand new day.
14: Uh, The exchange. It was successful.
16: Uh, Look there, at her, on that table. That's me.
14: That's me there.
16: No, madame. That's merely your face. Oh, ah, You see, your old face speaks. Your old eyes awaken. Is, is it over? Yes, yes, it's over. Look, look there on the other table.
15: Oh, no. Oh, I thought for a while it was a dream. But she has my face.
16: <laughs> Would you ladies care to see a mirror? No,
14: no, I do not. I should. I should love a
16: mirror. Ah. Here you are. It's true. Oh, it's true.
14: I smile, and it is her smile. I'm young again. Oh, thank you, doctor. Thank you. How soon may we leave? I'm anxious to get back to Paris. Why,
16: immediately, if you like.
14: Oh, then I bid you goodbye, doctor.
16: Oh, no, madame. Not goodbye. Au Au revoir
12: madame de Valfleury, with the face of the young beautiful berthe Charon, was the sensation of paris that autumn of course she took a new name victorine de beaulieu she called herself when she drove by people pressed forward on the sidewalks to catch a glimpse of her When she entered her box at the opera, everybody in the house looked at her as much as at the stage. Every other face in Parisian society paled in her presence, like candle flames in sunshine. She was triumphant. And yet, something was missing.
13: How lovely you are. Oh, I could waltz with you all night.
14: I must ask you to stop dancing immediately. I I cannot dance anymore tonight.
13: But of course, we'll stop. Are you ill? No,
14: merely tired.
13: Uh, come, we'll go out onto the balcony. Why are you so cold to me? I adore you. Oh,
14: please, that sort of thing doesn't interest me. Oh, please don't. I'm tired of that.
13: Do you know that everyone in Paris is calling you... The girl who's tired of love?
14: Are they? Tell me, young man, how old are you?
13: I'm 22. But you mustn't talk to me as if I were a child.
14: 22.
13: (laughs) Tell me your name again. Oh, I adore you, and you don't even remember my name. It's Robert Verne.
14: Robert, listen to me. I look young, but I'm not... You must find some lovely girl your own age.
13: You're no more than 19. What are you talking about?
14: You're a very good-looking boy, Robert. How curly your hair is. Oh,
13: blast my hair. I shall have it torn out. Oh, no, you
14: mustn't. You're a nice boy, and I'm sure you will lead a wonderful, rich life. How I wish that I had had a son like you.
13: But I must see her. Victory. Oh,
14: Robert, you should not have burst in here like that. I left word that I did not want to see you again.
13: But why? How can you be so cruel? Sit
14: down, Robert.
13: Oh. How
14: like a schoolboy you are. Now listen to me. I would not talk to you like this if I didn't have a very deep, deep affection for you.
13: You do have affection for me. Then marry me. Be my wife. Don't.
14: Please don't.
13: I adore you. I love you with all my soul. No,
14: no, Robert. You don't love me a bit. You just think you do. There's nothing in me for you to love. I am as different from you as if there were 40 years between us. You only imagine you love me because... You admire my face, and it is no longer even a face to admire. I looked at it today in the mirror. Oh, I'm an expert at looking in mirrors, dear Robert. And I saw there a slightly damaged face. A young face with the bitterness of a selfish old woman.
13: I love you so, and you treat me like a child.
14: Like a child? Oh, I'm so fond of you, Robert. Fonder than of anybody in the world. But you must see that I can't marry you.
13: I wish I had never seen you.
14: You mustn't come here anymore. And I'm so sorry, Robert.
13: I beg you for just one kiss before I go.
14: A kiss? Oh, my boy. My dear boy.
13: On the Forehead. Good Lord, I adore you, and you kiss me as if you were my mother.
17: Driver,
14: Driver, stop the carriage. There's somebody there on the street I want to talk to. Young lady, Berta.
15: Oh, it's you. You with my face.
14: Yes. And you with mine.
15: Blast you?
14: You're unhappy.
15: Why shouldn't I be unhappy? What good is money to me? Do you think fine clothes make up for all I've lost? I want to be danced with. I want to be kissed. I want love. You mustn't speak so loudly. Those men across the street are looking at us. They're not looking at me. No man ever looks at me. They're looking at my face.
14: And you have it. Bert, come here for a moment into the light. No. I want to see my old face again. Very well. Look. Oh. How changed it is. It's younger, more beautiful. Tell me, what cosmetician have you been going to? None. No, it is not makeup. It's a gentleness, a compassion that face never had before. It's a beautiful face. What's happened? I, I don't know. I remember once, many years ago, that face had such a look, it... You're in love. Yes. How strange we human beings are. We all think beauty is something you wear outside of you. Like a, a cloak, a handsome mask to slip on for the world to see. But all the beauty, the real beauty, does come from inside. Tell me, child. Tell me about this man you love.
15: Oh, it's a joke. I've only seen him from a distance at a theater, at a ball. He's never even spoken to me. His name? Robert Van.
14: Oh, my dear child. Listen to me. Get into my carriage. We are going together tonight, back to the village of Saint-Pierre-de-Champs. Back to the village? It was a mistake from the start, and it must be undone. We must exchange back again. Exchange
15: again? But I I could not refund you more than half the money you paid me. I would not ask you to refund a
14: sewer that you could keep it as a marriage portion. I ask only one favor. Yes. I... I should like to play a little game. After we have changed again... Would you mind if for a few short moments we pretended, like, like play-acting, <laughs> that I was your mother? Come in, young man. Come in, Monsieur Robert Verne.
13: Yes, thank you i oh,
14: What's wrong, young man
13: i- I thought I recognised the voice, and I expected
14: to, to see my daughter. She will be in presently.
13: You're her mother. she never told me about you,
14: my dear boy. My daughter has been ill ill a slight disease of the mind, but it's nothing to worry about it. It has been completely cured.
16: Oh,
13: then that explains it,
14: oh, yes. Yeah. For today, she feels entirely different. She loves you very
13: much. Oh, I can't tell you how happy that makes me.
14: I am happy, too. For if I have a daughter who marries a fine, wonderful young man, do I not have a son as well?
13: Oh, madame. Where is she?
14: I will call her. Daughter, your young man is here.
15: Yes, Mother.
13: Oh, I'm so happy to see you.
14: Oh, go, go. Both of you. Dance, have fun. Love each other very much. We shall. We shall.
15: And Mother, how young you look. How very young.
12: You've just heard Leonard Merrick's Change of Face, the favorite story of a favorite of music lovers throughout the world, Miss Lily Pons. B. Benaderet and Nina Clowden were our leading players. And as always, Claude Sweeten composed and conducted the music. I'll return in a moment to tell you about next week's favourite story. Next week, a story with a title both odd and unconventional, The Young Man Who Stroked Cats, by Molly Roberts. And you might say it's the story of an enchantment. Miss Dorothy L'Amour named it as her favourite, and Lon McAllister will join us to play the leading role. We hope you'll be listening.
0: You recall a Twilight Zone story called The Chaser, based on a story by John Collier. You might remember the farewell that a love potion seller says to the buyer. Au revoir, meaning be seeing you. Collier wrote his story in 1952, and he may have gotten that ironic final line from Leonard Merrick, who wrote his story, Change of Face, about 40 or 50 years earlier. That was Favorite Story with Change of Face from December 28th, 1948. We'll have a case for Richard Diamond next here on Skywave Audio Theater. Dick Powell may have gotten the lighthearted radio detective phenomenon started with Rogue's Gallery in 1946. Within a couple of years, he hit stride as Richard Diamond, private detective, and he had the advantage of writer-producer Blake Edwards and probably his own comic inclinations to launch Richard Diamond. In the story at hand, Powell also had a great cast, a supporting cast including Ed Max and Jay Novello and Howard McNear. This is The Thomas Jason Case. It's Richard Diamond, private detective from December 31st, 1949. Portions of the
18: following program are transcribed. As Richard Diamond, private detective. Is
19: uh, this the Diamond Detective Agency?
2: Well, what does the sign on the door say? Yeah, uh,
19: Diamond Detective Agency. And take a guess. Uh, are you Mr. Richard Diamond? It depends. How much does he owe you? Uh, uh, nothing. You just want to speak to him? I do. You come as a client? Yes, I do. You have a hundred a day in expenses? Yeah, I do. Then I now pronounce this man and client. Your name, please. Uh, my, my name's Thomas Jason. The stockbroker? <laughs> you better pay cash. Oh, I, I'm retired now, Mr. Diamond. And to end this uh, nonsense, here's your hundred dollars. Oh, thank you. Now, what's your trouble? Uh, it's Carol, uh, my adopted daughter. We adopted her when she was 12, but my wife died shortly after. Frankly... Carol has been trouble ever since. And now? Uh, Now, I'm afraid it is no longer a matter of delinquency. I... uh, Well, there have been several incidents that make me suspect that she's trying to do away with me. Oh, sweet girl. What's her reason? Uh, My money. In my will, she is my only heir. Why not change the will? Uh, I said I suspected her, but I'm not certain, Mr. Diamond. And you understand, it would be terrible to disinherit her if I am wrong about my suspicions. I, I, I simply must be sure before I change my will. She have any idea of your suspicion? Well, yes, yes, yes. This morning, I did speak to her. They mentioned the possibility of cutting her from my will. She flew into a rage, made several terrible threats. Oh, what do you want me to do? Well, sir, I want you to... Oh, excuse me. Diamond
2: Detective Agency, we have the only corpse with the lie-down design. Oh, Rick,
14: why don't you answer
2: the phone right? Okay, Helen, baby. Diamond Detective Agency, Mr. Richard Diamond
19: speaking. What? See, it throws you. Mr. Diamond. Uh, Honey, I'll see you tonight. I got a client. She?
15: He. Good.
19: Aye. You were saying, Mr. Jason, before I was so nicely interrupted... Yes, I I want you to either prove my fears to be true or groundless. If I am right, I will change my will, of course. Where do I start? Uh, Come to my house at three this afternoon. Here's the address. I'll introduce you to my stepdaughter, Carol, as a business acquaintance. After you've met and talked with her, I'll give you what details I have about her threats and actions. Okay, Mr. Jason, I'll be at your place at three this afternoon. Uh, Good day, Mr. Diamond.
2: I checked the time and found it to be nearly twelve, so I beat it out to grab a bite of food before the noon rush began. Cafes in downtown Manhattan at lunchtime can only be compared to a can of sardines after all their relatives move in. When I had downed my daily bread, I went back to the office, did a little washing, and found myself with still time to kill. So being interested in my new client's problems and always liking a clear view of a new case, I dropped in at the 5th precinct to see what Lieutenant Levison had on the Jason family. When I walked into the squad room, I found Sergeant Otis tilted back in his chair with his number 14s crossed on the desk in front of him. From the sounds he was making, he was either sleeping or gargling with molasses. Sergeant
20: Otis. Oh, boy. Sergeant
2: Otis. Otis, wake up.
4: What?
20: Oh. Oh. Oh, it's
2: you, Patrol leader Diamond with his stout-hearted brownies who are shocked by your dreams. Shame on you. Hey, how'd you know I was dreaming about a dame? I peaked. Mm. You know, I think I'll tell the lieutenant that you were sleeping on the job.
20: Well, oh, oh, no, please don't do that, Seamus. You start me pounding the beat again. Please don't tell him.
2: Well, maybe I'll let you off the hook, but only if you tell Walt we're pals. That might stop him from giving me the devil about ribbing you.
20: Pals? You mean
2: friends? Buddies.
3: Oh, no, I couldn't stand it.
19: Hello, Hello, Walt. Okay, so where's the body? No body. You lost one? Now you stop that.
2: Well, get you. All bad because I can't find a body for you. Now,
19: please, Rick.
2: What do you want? I just wanted any dope you might have on the Thomas Jason family. Jason?
19: Yeah, the broker. Oh, oh nothing on him, but plenty on his stepdaughter, Carol. Like what? Oh, she's a regular. Usually D&D, drunk driving, disturbing the peace. You want to see
2: the file? Yeah, I might be worth a look. Uh, have my pal, order spring it in.
19: Sure, up. You're what? My pal. What did you know? Otis isn't I have friends. <laughs> Is that why he tries to hide under the desk every time he sees you coming?
2: Call him in. See for yourself.
19: You think I won't? Otis, get the file on Carol Jason. Bring it in here. Uh, yeah, Lieutenant. <laughs> now we'll see. Friend, <laughs> that's a laugh.
2: That's <laughs> a laugh yourself. You better be feeling good. Yeah, what do you mean by that?
20: You'll see. Uh, yeah, Lieutenant. Here's the file.
2: I'll take uh... it, Otis. Thank you very much.
19: Sergeant Otis, you have an opportunity to do me a great favor. Please, and without profanity, tell me what you think of Rick.
20: Oh, he's nice.
19: What? You're turning blue, Walt. I'll turn blue if I want to. What did you do to Otis?
2: Dope him? You heard him. He thinks I'm nice. We're pals, buddies. I
19: heard him, all right, but I wouldn't believe it on
20: the stack of police manuals. Otis, I'll give you one chance. What's this all about? The shamus told you, Lieutenant. I think he's a swell egg. A great guy. Thank you, Otis, my uh, friend. Always kidding, but a good pal. Otis, do your feet ache? My feet? Why, no, Lieutenant. Well, they
19: will. I'm sending you to a beat.
20: A beat?
19: Yes, and Yonkers.
20: Oh, no!
2: I went through the file on Carol Jason and found out Walt hadn't been kidding. She'd been picked up for everything from kicking dogs to slugging her boyfriend with a champagne bottle. Real nice girl. I left Walt trying to third-degree the truth out of Otis and headed for what I hoped would be a nice, easy case. In a few minutes, I was in front of my client, Jason's house, on East 66th Street. It turned out to be a modest little shack of some 30 rooms with a brownstone cover. I was ushered in to wait in the library for Thomas Jason. But I got a surprise.
17: Mr. Diamond?
2: Well... Now, I'll bet you're Carol. Your stepfather's told me so much about you.
17: You're a friend of my stepfather's?
2: Well, uh, you might say we have things in common. Where is he?
17: I'm afraid you can't see him, Mr. Diamond. You see, he's become quite ill.
2: Oh, ill so quickly? I talked to him a few hours ago. He's about as sickly as Paul Bunyan.
17: Mr. Diamond, will you please leave?
2: Not until you tell me what happened to Jason, where he is, and why I can't see him.
17: Get out. Do you hear me? Get out.
2: Oh, put a cork in it, honey. Your father suspected trouble. Apparently, it came quicker than he thought. Me, I want to know all your little secrets.
17: Just who are you? Policeman?
2: Private policeman, dear. Your father hired me this morning. Well,
17: I'm firing you this afternoon. Father's ill, and I will not allow him to be disturbed.
2: He paid me for a day's work. Tomorrow you can fire me. Is he here?
17: No, no. Now, will you get out, or do I call the real police?
2: Oh, maybe you'd better, dear. There's a smell around here that isn't a room full of roses.
17: All right. If it's going to save trouble, I will tell you this much. Father had a serious mental condition. This afternoon, a couple of hours ago, he had an attack. And I was forced to have him taken to a place where he could be treated properly.
9: With what?
2: Embalming fluid?
17: Why, you insulting.
2: Where was he taken? Who's the doctor?
17: I think I've answered all the questions I need to, Mr. Diamond. My actions are entirely legal. If you persist in your insinuations, I shall see that your license is revoked and that you are charged with defamation of character.
2: Oh, get you. You've been reading up on the law, and I'll bet I know why. All right, dear. I'll leave now.
17: Go on, and don't come back. Temper, temper, temper.
2: I'm going, but we'll see each other again. Uh, Hello, Pop. Got a
4: minute?
11: I reckon so, Misty.
2: That's on your mind. Oh, questions Like how long you've been out here mowing the lawn?
11: Most of the day. Why?
2: Did you uh, see Mr. Jason leave?
11: Oh, sure. Left in an ambulance, he did. He was wearing a funny white coat with the arms tied in back. My fashion certainly changed. You
2: didn't notice any name on the ambulance, did you? As a
11: matter of fact, I did, (laughs) mister. Oh, my, it was a silly name. About the silliest I've ever heard of. Oh, the
2: name, Pop. What was it?
11: Oh, don't be in such a dang rush. It was, uh, home sweet home, rest home. <laughs> ain't that
2: silly? I don't think my client agrees with you. If he was taken there for a rest, it may be a permanent one. Next stop, a drugstore with a phone book. Said book gave me the address, and I was soon in Baychester, looking at something pretty swank in the way of nut houses. Home sweet home was two acres of lawn, trees, and a square white blockhouse and all surrounded by 15 feet of spiked steel fencing. By this time, the setup was really beginning to smell, and I decided that maybe a shamus might not be welcome. So for a moment, I stood by the big gate, debating how I could get in. The answer was fairly simple. I rang the bell. It caused a huge character wearing a white jacket with arms like hairy telephone poles to appear. Yeah? What can I do for you, mister? Let me in. Why? This is a rest home, isn't it? Yeah. Well, I don't want to rest. Oh, funny. Beat it. I want to speak to the doctor, King Kong. Is he in? Maybe, maybe not. Who wants him? I do. Who are you? Ah, uh, let's just say I'm a patient. You gonna keep me out here dying of schizophrenia? Doctor Thorne is busy now. Come back later. Look, in one minute I start throwing fits. Think how that'll ruin your trade. Yeah, the doc wouldn't like that. Maybe you had better come in. Now, that's right neighborly of your friend. Wow. Nice place. For nuts? Please. I'm a patient, remember? So, if you're a nut, I should care. If you ain't, why should you? Now, that's a homely bit of philosophy. Tell me, what do you do here, break skulls? I don't think I like you. And I'm a nurse. What a shock this will be to Dr. Kildare. I don't know him. Now, you wouldn't. His nurses are pretty. If he had to have you as a nurse, he'd quit medicine and take up playing the Glockenspiel. Sally, you're nuts. Wait here. I'll get the doctor. Yes, nurse. Dr. Thorne, you got a patient, I think. All right, Brazo. I am Dr. Thorne, sir. What can I do for you? He's nuts, Doc. Be quiet, Brazo. No, oh, he's right, Doc. I, I'm nuttier than a squirrel's hideout. Well, I'm afraid I can be of no assistance, Mr. Uh, promise you won't tell. Is yes, I promise? It's... I am Sherlock Holmes. What? H O L. I can spell. I'm afraid you've come to the wrong place, Mr. Holmes. This is a private sanitarium, and certain procedures must be followed. I have money, I can pay, and I want to stay here. But, Mr. Holmes, you must be examined by a doctor and committed by a relative. You're a doctor? Examine me. But your relatives, you you can't commit yourself. Why not? I demand my rights. Oh, this is preposterous. This is not a hotel. You can't just come in and register. Tell me, who's your doctor? Where is your home? Well, look, look. Tell you what, you let me stay here for the day and I'll tell you who my doctor is. And if you don't let me stay, I'll tell
19: everyone what a
2: bad place you have. Uh, you uh, you said something about having uh, money. Just how much money? I've got a mattress full. Can I stay? Well, perhaps it can be arranged. Though, of course, I must examine you. Of course. And there will be a certain um, fee, you understand? Mm, I'm beginning to. Tell me, Mr... Stop! Certainly, are most annoying. Tell me, why do you want to stay here anyway? Well, I I've got to stop the plot. The the plot. You know about that? Sure. You planned to rub out Fearless Fosdick, but I'm not going to let you. Oh, I see. Tell me, do you uh, do you have any dreams? Well, of course. I have dreams about eating ice cream cones, and oh, what a mess they are. What's so messy about eating an ice cream cone? My mouth is always filled with BBs. BBs? For my air rifle, stupid. How else could I stand off the Indians? Well, what Indians? Well, the Indians who want to steal my ice cream cones. Now, why would Indians want your ice cream cones? Oh, they're mad about pistachio. You are crazy, aren't you? Brazo, take Mr... Um... Oh, never mind. Take him to observation room B, Brazo. I don't have time for... The examination now. Uh, Wait, uh, can't I be with the other patients? I get lonely. Later, later. Come on, Sherlock. This way. Well, I was in, thanks to the good doctor not being able to pass up a possible easy buck. The big ape, Brazo led me to a small room with bars on the window and a spring lock on the door. When he left, I made like a smart gumshoe and went after the lock with my penknife. Due to my early training in picking locks at the automat, I was out like Alabama. I found myself in a long hall with seven rooms, three on each side and one at the end. I knocked on every door. Nothing. Not even Bogart. The last one had to be Jason. Are you in there, Mr. Jason?
19: Diamond. Oh, oh, I am glad to hear your voice. Please, get, get me out of here. Just take it easy. I don't have a key, and this door has a padlock on it. But you must get me out.
2: Sure, sure, but give me time. First, tell me what's the score. Why did they lock you up?
19: Carol had it planned. She has paid Dr. Thorne to keep me here until I go crazy. She wants to have me judged legally insane so she can take the estate.
2: Yeah, well, maybe I can put a few kinks in her plan.
19: Wait, wait, Diamond, where are you going?
2: Uh, There's a phone in the doctor's office. If no one's there, I'll use it to get help.
19: What if you can't get to the phone?
2: Then I go out and get the Marines. If I can get by that ape man that locked gate. Don't go away.
19: Oh, there you
2: are, Sherlock. Oh, don't pick on me. I was only three and a half years old. Yeah, I'm upset with you, Sherlock. You oughtn't to be running around the halls like this, well, huh? A Guy's got to have his constitutional Brazil. Yeah, well, you're true with yours. The doc wants to examine you now. I, I, I've, I've changed my mind. I, I don't think I'd I like it here. I said the doc wants you what the doc wants, he gets. Well, bully for him, but this is one time you won't. I'm believing. I don't want to break your arm, Sherlock. No, no. So you don't leave until the doc says so? Well, I'm sorry to disappoint him, but certain things are necessary like this. Oh. Now, you shouldn't act like that. I might get mad. Oh, my knuckles. What is your jaw made of? Concrete? Come on, Sherlock. Or do you want to try again? Uh, No, thanks. One busted hand is enough. And don't try to run. The gate's locked. And if I have to catch you, (laughs) I'll fix your legs so you can't run again. Friendly little butcher, aren't you? Right in here, Sherlock. Doc is waiting. (laughs) Here he is, Doc. Good. You can go back to the office, browser. I won't need you. Where? You seem to be well trained as a detective, Mr. Holmes. Do you always pick locks so easily? I do better with my erector set. Uh, But you needn't examine me further. I've changed my mind. You've changed your. This is odd. First you demand in, now you want out. I just remembered I forgot to pick up my station wagon. But the Indians? You want me to help you keep them from stealing your ice cream cones, don't you? Uh, They already got them, and all my money, too. They're both gone. Your money? Then you don't have any money? Not a Bolivar. Now, may I go, doctor? You're going to stay right here, Mr. Holmes. There's something peculiar about the way you've recovered from your illusions. The doc, yeah. Miss Jason to see her. She's in your office. Very well, Brazo. Stay here and guard this man, whoever he is. The Holmes, age old... Will you shut up? I make sure he stays put this time, Brazo. I have some questions I want to ask him. He won't go in the place, doc. You go ahead to the office. Well, Carol... This is a pleasant surprise. Come to visit Jason.
17: Thorne, our plans will have to be changed. Changed? Something has come up that may cause an investigation of Stepfather's illness. We can't afford to take a chance of that.
2: But we can't let Jason go now. I had
17: no such intentions. He must be taken care of tonight. Taken care
21: of? But that's impossible. How
2: could I... He must
17: be gotten rid of. What?
21: Oh, No. No, I didn't bargain for murder.
2: Look,
17: Thorne, you're in and you stay in. I've paid you $10,000. Don't forget it. But
2: why all this sudden rush to change our plan? Why can't we... A private
17: detective came to see me this morning. He was hired by stepfather. I knew he had suspicions, but I didn't know they'd gone so far. A detective? Oh, he can't act legally, but he's a sort to cause trouble. Detective. Private detective. Sherlock Holmes. He's rambling about.
2: I'm afraid we're in serious trouble. Come with me. What? Your private detective. I think he's already found Jason. Come on. You wouldn't
17: like to earn a hundred bucks, would you, Brazo? No. It is you, Diamond.
2: Uh-oh, fun's over.
17: Thorne, you fool. How'd he get in here? He said he was a patient, Carol, and I swear he seemed crazy enough. He probably said he had money. Uh,
2: you seem to understand each other, honey, but do you mind? I'd like to take Mr. Jason home For now. For a couple
17: of extra dollars, you let him walk right in. Oh, Thorne, you're an idiot. I suppose he found Jason and talked to him.
2: Well, he did get out of his room and wander about. Oh, well, that's
17: great. So now he knows the whole works.
2: Uh, too bad, baby. Your plan is kaput. No,
17: not White diamond. You've just talked yourself into real trouble. This gun says for you not to get any bright ideas. My
2: IQ just dropped 30 points.
17: Shut him up, Brazo. Sure.
2: Hey, now wait a minute.
17: Oh. (laughs) Now stay with him while Thorne and I make arrangements. We won't be long.
2: (laughs) Do I get that? Yes, Brazo,
17: when we're ready. Come on, Thorne. I want to talk to stepfather.
2: Brazo's fist was made of the same stuff as his jaw. By the time I came around, darkness had painted the window, and the room was full of shadow and Brazo. The big hulk was squatting a few feet away, paying no attention to me. So I waited till my mind was clear while I eased off my right shoe. The heel was leather with a steel plate in it. I could only hope it was harder than Brazo's skull. With the shoe in my hand behind me, I was ready, only to have him catch me stirring. <laughs> Coming too, eh, uh, Shamus? Yeah, oh, yeah. Uh, h- hand me my cigarettes, will you, Brazo? Need a smoke, eh? Uh, oh. <laughs> sure. Uh, where, where are they? Uh, fell out of my pocket uh, over there behind uh, you. Oh, uh, where, where? I don't see you. <laughs> oh, say, that's not. Need another? Oh. Stop that. Oh, come on, Buster, fall. <laughs> well, is little old Brazo finally getting sleepy? Happy New Year, buster. Clevenson, homicide. Walt, Rick, if you don't want me to be a customer of yours, get out to the home sweet home rest home fast. What? Hey, what kind
19: of a gag is this
22: now?
2: It's no gag, believe me. My client and I are the blue plate specials and dinner is about to be served.
19: The home sweet... Oh, it still sounds like a gag. Who'd call
2: anything that? Now, don't argue, Walt. It's no joke. Okay, Rick. What's the address? 1820 Allerton Avenue, Baychester. And bring a blowtorch to cut an iron gate. You may have to. All right. I'll be there in 30 minutes. But quicker, if you can.
17: Stand right there, Diamond. Or I'll use this gun.
2: Uh, good afternoon. I represent the sleep tight... Like I mort-
17: came just in time. Only now that you've fixed Rosso, you'll have to dig your own grave.
2: Dig my own grave? Oh, honey, is this trip really necessary?
17: Keep moving or I'll kill you right here.
2: Uh, I I move.
17: Keep going. Over there behind those trees where Thorne and Jason are. Well, is Jason... He's alive, but not for long. Where's Rosal? I thought he was going to... Diamond knocked him out. They can dig their own graves. There, the shovels. Get busy. Carol,
19: please. You may have the money. I swear... Shut up and dig. Carol, this is... Just
17: work the shovel.
2: Can you imagine Richard Diamond, private detective, letting a sawed-off female make him dig his own grave? You can't? Well, she did. And for a good half hour. I stalled as long as I could to give Walt Levinson the chance to get there.
17: That's enough. I said that's deep enough. Oh,
19: please. I, I, I'm i just
17: started. You're finished. Jason, get into that hole with him.
19: Uh, very well. I, I, I guess this is it, Diamond. I'm sorry to have dragged you in. Well, that's a horrible way to say it. Don't we get time for a last
2: cigarette?
17: No. Thorne, take this gun.
2: What? Oh, no, I'm not going to kill them. Shut
17: up and take this gun.
2: Oh, don't do it, Thorne. Be a man about it.
17: Here, Thorne. Don't be such a weakling. Two shots and it's over.
2: No. It was your idea. I'm no murderer. That up, boy. Stick up for your rights. You
17: shut up. Thorne, do you do the job or do I make you number three in that grave?
2: You wouldn't dare. You, You need me. That a boy, Thorne. Tell her.
17: Go on, Thorne. Take the gun.
2: No, I can't. I just can't. Not like this. You weakling. I'll do it
17: myself. Now, turn around, Diamond.
2: Oh, now, look, baby, this thing's getting out of hand. You shoot me and the law will be all over the place. Not
17: until I've filled that grave in over you.
2: I called them, baby. Oh,
17: you're lying. Am
2: I? Well, just turn around and take a look at that lovely, big, fat policeman standing over there by that tree.
17: Oh, you really don't expect me to fall for an old stunt like that.
2: Well, if you don't, you'll fall for something. It's your funeral.
17: No, it isn't. It's yours. All
19: right, lady, drop it. What? Why, you... Smarty. I'll tell you anyway. Carol... <laughs> Rick, Rick, what the devil's
2: going on here? What are you doing down there? I'm looking at the girl. I, I think you shot her pretty bad. Who are these two guys? Well, the guy with the cast in that knees is Doc Thorne. Better put their cuffs on him as an accessory. But you can't do this. I was the one that re- refused to shoot you. Oh, stop licking my hand. You can tell it to the precinct judge. Otis, snap the cuffs on him
19: and take him out the car. Sure. Come on, you. Now, what about this other guy? The girl's stepfather. How do you feel, Mr. Jason? Sick, Mr. Diamond. How about the girl, Rick? Shall I call the ambulance? I don't know. Carol. Carol. Well, Rick.
2: Ah, take your time, Walt. She's not with us. (laughs) I gave Walt the story, then took Jason to his house. Stayed there long enough to brush the dirt off my clothes, wash my hands, and then I headed for a delayed date. At 975 Park Avenue, I found a big fireplace and a lovely redhead waiting for me. A redhead wearing a dress that was part green silk and part... Well.
14: I'm the library, darling.
2: Come on in. Uh, hello, Helen, baby. You sound like you found oil in the basement. What's with the cheer, Me? Isn't it always?
14: I like you.
2: Hmm, I like the way you say that. Looking up at me with those big green eyes. They're
14: not green. They're hazel. Oh, are they? Hmm.
2: Let me look closer. Uh-uh. Not until you sing for me. Sing? Oh, honey, I'm tired. I want to rest. No,
14: you don't. No, over to the piano. No. Rick, not here. But,
2: Helen, all I wanted to do was... I know,
14: Rick.
2: Oh, you've been using that Ouija board again. I don't want to sing.
14: Now look in my eyes? Close range. Contact. I'll sing. That's better.
2: Like, hey. uh, you must have been a beautiful baby.
14: I love it.
2: You...
6: You must have been a beautiful baby You must have been a wonderful
2: child When you were only starting to go to kindergarten I bet you drove the little boys wild And when it came to winning blue ribbons Must have shown the other kids how I can see the judge's eyes As they handed you the prize I bet you
6: made the cutest bow Oh, you must have been a beautiful baby Cause, baby, look at you now
2: Like that?
14: That was wonderful, Rick.
2: Come here. Mm, About time.
14: Mm. Oh, Rick. Do you think you can do that and sing, too?
2: Honey, when you look at me like that, I could kiss you, sing, and knit a whole sweater at the same time.
5: Rick, could you? Want
2: to try? The sweater
5: will take years. I'll
19: buy that. Come here. We'll start with the neck.
2: Rick. Mm -hmm. Mm. Mm, You know something? Mm,
4: What?
2: I may even knit you a whole suit.
18: I've just heard Richard Diamond, Private Detective, starring Dick Powell. Helen was played by Virginia Gregg, Lieutenant Levinson by Ed Begley. Also in our cast were Wilms Herbert, Hi Averback, Betty Moran, Howard McNear, Edwin Max, and Jane Novello. Music was under the direction of Frank Worth. Tonight's story was written by Herb Purdom and edited and directed by Blake Edwards. Portions were transcribed. Dick Powell soon will be seen in the screen version of the best-selling novel, Mrs. Mike. Now, this is Eddie King inviting you to be with us again at the same time next week when we will again bring you Dick Powell as Richard Diamond, Private Detective. How much is your life worth? Think about that for a minute. Is it worth a little care? Well, that's all that's needed to protect it on America's streets and highways. Only your careful driving and your acceptance of personal responsibility for your own life can guard you from the dangers of the road. The price that you may pay for carelessness is a high one. And it's a price that thousands upon thousands of accident victims have already paid. Their gamble with death behind the wheel is a stark warning. A warning that an accident can happen to you. Last year alone, some 32,000 persons were killed in traffic accidents and well over a million others were injured. Smash-ups have averaged more than one a minute, every minute of the day and night. These are the facts of traffic dangers. As for the facts of traffic safety, well, they all boil down to just two facts. Careful driving by automobile owners, careful walking by pedestrians. So drive carefully, walk carefully. The care you take may save a life, and that life may be your own. Saturday night is packed with entertainment when you stay tuned to NBC's star lineup of shows. Each Saturday, make it a point to listen to NBC. You'll hear Hollywood Star Theater, Ralph Edwards' Truth or Consequences, your hit parade, A Day in the Life of Dennis Day, The Judy Canova Show, Grand Old Opry, and songs by Morton Downey. Now, stay tuned for Lionel Barrymore and Hollywood Star Theater on NBC.
0: Dick Powell as Richard Diamond and friends having great fun with the Thomas Jason case. It came from December 31st, 1949. Powell as Diamond also provided the narration and the occasional song at the end, and Dick Powell also whistled his own theme song fore and aft of each episode of Richard Diamond. We're about to meet a man who could work miracles. H.G. Wells may be best remembered as the author of The War of the Worlds, but he had a major impact on 20th century English writing in general, with works such as The Country of the Blind, The Time Machine, The Invisible Man, and The Outline of History, none of which are known for comedy. Wells did write comedy, though, as is going to become clear in a moment. In 1898, the same year that brought the debut of The Time Machine, Wells wrote a comic fantasy called The Man Who Could Work Miracles. If you're used to hearing... Ben Wright as Hayboy to John Daner's Paladin, you're going to find them in very different roles, as Gay and clergyman Maydig in Escape from December 31st, 1950, The Man Who Could Work Miracles.
23: You, finding life rather dull, dreaming again of exotic places, wishing you were somewhere else, we offer you escape
22: Escape with us now to a placid English village and the company of an equally placid little man who one day shook the world as H.G. Wells told it in his delightful story The Man Who Could Work Miracles.
21: Now, I might say right in the beginning that I ain't the kind of chap who has a naturally argumentative disposition. Oh, no, quite the contrary. I'm a reasonable man who always takes proper thought before he speaks and one who has a due respect for scientific truth. Why, I ain't never opened my mouth to utter a word that wasn't a pure, undiluted effect. That's what you say. Howsoever... When a man of inferior intellect, such as Toddy Bemis has showed himself to be more than once, when a man like that insists upon airing his ridiculous opinions in a public place such as the Long Dragon Bar, then I've got no choice but to confound him with the superior knowledge which I possesses. So you say... That's right, so I say. And if you can't contribute nothing but the same three words to this discussion, I'll thank you to admit you're defeated and shut your mouth. Well, now, Mr. Fulfing, Easy,
20: lads, easy does it.
21: Well, I ask you, Constable, I'm only trying to enlighten the man from the bog of ignorance he's a-flandering in, and he keeps coming up with his infernal, so you say. Well, I'm a-wasting me words, that's all.
24: If pints of half and half flowed across this bar the way words do, then I'd have retired years ago.
20: <laughs> Speaking of half and half, I'll have another of the same if you don't mind, Miss Bridges. Can't you, Alcance, <coughs> By
21: all rights, Toddy Beamish, I shouldn't be wasting my time on you. But out of the goodness of my heart, I'll do it anyhow. Suit yourself.
4: Hmm.
21: Now, let's take, for example, that pint of hail that you're holding in your hand. It's pretty nigh, empty. Yeah. Yeah. Well, now. Supposing, for instance, if that hail was to turn into wine... I never
23: cared much for wine. Always like ale (laughs) better. Now, if that hail was to turn into wine, then you'd have a miracle. So you say. So
21: anybody says. Oh, take that master padlock on Miss Bridges' cash box. Now, if anyone could open that without a proper key, that'd be a ruddy miracle. <laughs> you
24: leave the ro- long dragging out of this.
21: Or perhaps you ain't even aware of the proper definition of what a miracle is,
23: her Mr. Beamish. Well, some is one kind and some is another. In a manner of speaking.
24: If anybody left so much as tuppence on the bars of tip, that'd be a miracle, all right.
21: Well, be that as it may. But a miracle ain't of one kind or another, oh, no. A true miracle is something contrary to the course of nature, done by the power of will. Something what couldn't happen without being specially willed to happen. And miracles ain't possible.
20: That is, a laddies, you
21: know. Well, I wouldn't go so far as to say they ain't. It's your ignorance of talking. Now, look, you see that lamp sitting there on the end of the bar, burning as bright as you please? I see it right enough. Well, now, that lamp in the natural course of nature couldn't burn like that if it was turned upside down and hanging in the hair.
23: You say it couldn't. Mr Beamish, do you mean to tell me... All but... right, all right, maybe it couldn't. And if it did...
21: That would be a miracle. Very well. Now, supposing somebody was to come along, that'd take me, for instance, and he pointed his finger at that lamp like this and said, turn upside down.
25: <laughs> now,
21: if the...
24: Good, do oh, oh, well. well, and there without no visible means of support. Well, I
21: can't keep it up there much longer. Oh, remarkable, it's highly remarkable.
20: Stop it now, Mr. Fotheringay. Stop it immediately. <laughs> That's my official order. Well, look
21: out, constable! Look out, there it goes.
24: Oh, oh. oh. now see once you've done, Mr. Fotheringay. My best lamb chimney, clean no more than an hour ago, smashed a smitheree. But I
20: I didn't try to do it.
24: Oh, you know, you might have caught the place afire.
20: Most (laughs) irregular and illegal besides, like as not. No more of it now. Do you understand? But I told you I didn't mean for you it. You and to...
21: your silly conjuring tricks. When all I done was to point my finger at
20: it like that. There, stop I... it now! Don't you dare! Well, that's
23: all I've done. In that case, Mr. Fotheringay, you defeat your own argument right out of your own mouth. And
21: how is that, might I ask?
23: If it weren't caused by some form of trickery. Then what happened to that lamp was a miracle. Now then, I ain't to hold him with no blooming miracles. Held with him or not, as the case may be, Mr. Farthingay. But you just stood right there and performed a real, true, honest, genuine miracle.
21: It weren't a matter of being asked to leave the Long Dragon, you understand. I had already had my mind set on going anyhow. A place what's full of ignorant superstition ain't the kind of place for a man of rational intellect to be doing his thinking in. And thinking was just what was called for. On the one hand, I wasn't ready to swallow no miracle theory, but on the other hand, I wasn't able to recollect no scientific principle that might account for that which had occurred. As you might say, the question had dissolved itself into a... Uh, dilemma well me landlady mrs tetherington was sitting up in the parlor when i come in
24: good evening mr fotheringay but i
21: can't recall saying anything to her
24: very well mr fotheringay
21: i went straight to me own room closed me door and lit the candle then i sat on the edge of my bed grappling with the problem in a heroic fashion and trying to puzzle out the ultimate solution well, now, that wasn't no easy thing to do. It couldn't have happened, but it had happened. Which ain't logic, no matter how you look at it. Why, it'd be the same situation if I was to point my finger at that candle there and say, be raised up in the air. <coughs> hey, blimey! me. there like a blooming firefly. But it's contrary-wise... No. Whoop, there it goes! No, <coughs> oh, now, that black as you're at... Oh, dear, now, where in the tarnation did that confounded thing get to? <laughs> well, at any rate, there should be some matches around here somewhere. Oh, here. Maybe I could... Yes. Let there be a match in me, Anne.
25: Mm-hmm. Well, now, just like that.
21: Oh, that's a safety match. Not a blooming good, that's going... Oh! Oh dear, uh, half a Mona. Uh, Maybe I don't need a match. Maybe I could. Yeah. Candle, wherever you are, be lighted. (laughs) Here now, not in the middle of my bed. None of that now.
24: (laughs) Well, open it up. It isn't locked. Mr. Fotheringay, might I inquire what's going on up here?
21: Can't you recognise a man who's got his hands full of troubles?
24: Mr. Fotheringay, why is smoke coming out of that bed? Because it caught on fire, that's why. My wall comforter with all burned in it. Taking lighted candles to bed with you indeed.
21: I'm not taking no candles nowhere, and I'll thank you to leave me the privacy of my own bedchamber.
24: You've been drinking.
21: On the contrary, I've been cogitating upon matters of science which is far beyond the range of your feeble uh, intellect. Well... Mrs. Tetherington, I might remind you that good, steady rumours such as a man like myself ain't so easy to come by nowadays, with which I will bid you a highly, a respectful, a good a night.
25: Well! <laughs>
21: we old vulture. Don't know who she's talking to. Me. A bloke what's only got to point his finger and say, B? And it is. Oh, blimey, if I ain't suddenly got the power to perform miracles. Real, genuine miracles.
22: Escape, under the direction of Norman McDonald, returns in just a moment. Tomorrow, New Year's Day, CBS will bring you exclusively the broadcast of the Rose Bowl game between the University of Michigan and the University of California. Don't miss this colorful, exciting event, the Rose Bowl game. Michigan, the Western Conference champions against California, fighting for the West Coast's first victory in the present series. It'll be here tomorrow, New Year's Day, on most of these same CBS stations. And now, back to Escape.
21: Well... Next evening, after work, I went walking down the lane that leads around Millsdale's pond, attempting to put me mental processes into order, as you might say. Mostly, I kept trying to cogitate on some honest to Betsy miracle that I might up and perform. But it ain't such an easy matter for a chap who's unaccustomed to goings-on of that nature. No, what I wanted was the genuine article. You understand, no, no little shenanigans, but one to make people stop and say, me now, if that ain't a real downright miracle for you. And then, all of a sudden, I had it. I just happened to recollect a chap somewheres who stuck his staff in the ground and commanded it to blossom, so... I poked my walking stick into the edge of the turf. I backed off a wee bit and pointed my finger at it and said, Walking stick, become a blooming bush of flowering posies. (laughs)
25: Ah,
21: roses, by heaven. I done it, just like that fellow in the opera.
20: Now then, what's all this here? Oh,
21: Constable Winch, confound that man anyhow.
20: Cease and desist, whatever it is. In the name of the law.
21: Hey, here, you, you there, Rosebush, go back now,
25: fast. <laughs> oh,
20: have a mind there who oh, it is you're throwing bramble bushes at. There.
21: Oh, confounded, blundering idiot. Uh,
20: who's conducting nefarious activities under the cover of darkness, assaulting an officer, engaging the pursuit of his natural. <sighs> Well, so it's you, Mr. Fotheringay. The fact, being self-evident, Mr. Winch, I will not bother myself to answer. So you'll not bother yourself to answer, eh? And maybe you'll also deny that you just threw a great heavy mass of foliage at me? I do deny it. Then no doubt it just up and flew through the air all by itself. A constable Winch... You have just hit the ruddy nail right on the head. Uh, oh, some more of them blasted Ankypan conjuring tricks of yours. Is that it? On the contrary, it was merely a small miracle. You don't say so. In which case, his honor might enjoy hearing you tell about it. So come along! I'll do nothing of the sort. Oh, oh, Resist you, <laughs> officer, but there'll be another charge against oh, you. Charge indeed, <laughs> Mr. Winch. You can take your charges and and
21: go to Hades. <coughs> hey, hey, hey um, constable, oh, Mr. Winch. Oh, blimey, if he ain't gone and disappeared complete, like. Now I wonder if he. Mm. Hmm, I'm thinking this medical business is a bit touchy. Why, a man might find himself in a whole peck of trouble before he learns the knack of the thing. Oh, I'd better go and get myself some real professional advice right away. (laughs) Good evening to you, friend. very pleasant evening to you. And, and the same to you as many of them, Mr. Maydig. Uh, that is, uh, your Reverendship. Oh, no, no, no formality now. None at all. You just call me Mr. Maydig. Oh, well, now, thank you kindly, your uh, Maydigship. Uh, won't you step inside? Uh, much obliged to you, Mr. Reverendship. Uh, this way, Mr. Oh, I can't say that I caught the name. Fothering A George a W, a Fotheringay. Ah, yes, yes. Not from my parish. Well, uh, yes, yes, I attended services last Christmas. Indeed. So many people did last Christmas. Well, here we are, Mr. Bothering Bay. Uh, take it, sure. Uh, it's uh, a Fothering Gay. Oh, no, 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 not, not that one. I, I mean, it, it's weak. I've often thought of doing something about it. Sometime... Yes, yes, that one's fine. Well, uh, but you remind me before I leave, Mr. Mayship, and I'll put that little piece of furniture to rights for you. Oh, then you're a carpenter. Well, only in a manner of speaking, as you might say. Mm, well, now, uh, Mr. Mothering, say, uh, feel entirely free to lay your burdens upon my shoulders. Uh, well, the fact is, uh, the matter which I come here to talk about might be considered a somewhat, uh, a delicate nature. Oh, think nothing of it. Please feel free to speak, well, freely. My housekeeper retires very early. Oh, oh, no, your reverend Chip. Nothing like that. Well, then, uh, like, like like, what? Uh, well, the subject about which I'm inquiring is miracles. Oh, miracles, yes, yes, indeed. Miracles? Any special kind of miracles? Oh, yes, the kind which I perform myself.
12: I see. And what sort of miracles do you perform?
21: Well, for one thing, I've uh, just finished sending Constable Winch to Hades. Hades? Indeed. Of course, when I realised what had happened, I had him transferred to San Francisco, uh, wherever that is. I'm sure he'll like San Francisco much better. Uh, I see you don't believe me. I can't say I blame you either. Well, after all, Mr. Dothering Ray... F- Fotheringay? Well, very well, there's nothing else to do but for me to up and perform a few miracles before we go any further. Well, that's uh, it's very interesting, I'm sure. Well, now, now, you take that jar of tobacco there on the table, for instance. Now, suppose I just point my finger at it like this and... Become a bowl of violets.
25: <laughs> well, that's
21: very interesting. Ah, oh, you see, a bowl of violets. God, blot <clears throat> mm, I mean, uh, so it is. Of course, it ain't nothing very spectacular, your Reverendship, but it's a sort of miracle a man can pass without tangling himself up in a mass of trouble. It's <laughs> extraordinary, very, uh, well, uh, extraordinary. Uh, uh, you can see for yourself there, uh, Real violets. Indeed. <laughs> Indeed. Now, mm. now, you take this for example. Um, oh. Become a bowl of fish.
25: <laughs>
21: <laughs> uh, oh, no, 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 not that kind. Live fish in a goldfish bowl, swimming around. Now. <laughs> oh, that's better. It's amazing. Uh, how did you do it? Just told it to. That's all? That's all. When I tells a thing to do it, it does it. It's incredible. Come on, me sudden, like you might say. Um, well, I'd like to know if it's real genuine miracles or if it ain't. Well, uh, uh, we're well, seeing as well, how miracles ought to come under your reverendship's special province, more or less. Well, uh, yes, yes, indeed. Um, uh, however, usually in a somewhat more uh, academic fashion, uh, these are more, well, uh, more astonishing. Well, as far as I can tell, there ain't no limit to it. Like, for instance, uh... A bowl of fish. Turn into a pigeon. (coughs) Good heavens. Look at the thing. I say... uh, None uh, of that. uh, uh, You say away from Mr. Maydick now. Perhaps I'd best uh, become that same uh, uh, jar of tobacco again. (coughs) Well, Reverend, what do you think about it? It's amazing. It's the most extraordinary thing I've ever seen in my life. I, I, ever expected to see. I've got to think about it and consider the possibilities. Well, I might come back in the morning. Oh, no, 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 I wouldn't hear of it. Uh, look here, I was about to dine when you rang. I uh, wonder if you'd join me. Of course, I'm afraid there's only cold mutton. Well, now, uh, perhaps there's something else you might like uh, better. Oh, anything. Frankly, I've grown to hate the sight of... But well, you don't mean... But well, why not? Just name it. Um... A pheasant? I haven't tasted a pheasant in years. Oh, then now is the time. Let there be a pheasant on the table.
25: <coughs>
21: no, 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 not, not like that. Let it be dead and roasted and ready to eat. Oh, look at it. Oh, it's beautiful. Mm, smells good, too. Perhaps we'd better. Uh, Yes. Let there be two pheasants. <coughs> uh, and uh, and uh, truffles. And truffles. <coughs> uh, maybe some uh, oysters. <laughs> two dozen oysters. Oh, I love... Uh, oh, We'd better make it three dozen. <coughs> oh, uh, and, and some cheddar. Oh, we must have some cheddar. Oh, yes.
25: A pound of cheddar. <coughs> and now,
21: what to drink, your reverend ship, uh, champagne? <laughs> well, <laughs> well, I really shouldn't... <laughs> Uh, well, perhaps a small bottle of Moselle. Six bottles of Moselle. Oh.
25: A keg of stout <laughs> and
21: a case of champagne.
4: <laughs> well,
21: there wasn't no mistake about it. I'd come to the right place for certain. Once Mr. Magdy got over his first astonishment, he turned out full of ideas for brand-new miracles, things I might never have thought of, like as not. Well, we polished off that meal in no time at all. And an hour later, we was out walking in the dark streets of the village, turning out miraculous jobs so fast, I fairly wore out my finger a-pointing with it. I couldn't begin to tell you all the things we'd done there in a couple of hours, but, well, we installed a new railway line... We drained Flinders' swamp and turned it into a meadow. We cured the vicar's warts, paved all the roads, eliminated taxation, reformed the Lord Mayor and made all the girls in the village beautiful. Oh, these weren't any of your apony miracles. All of these, these were big. And we went right on turning them out. One every two minutes, just as regular as clockwork. Well... By midnight we passed clean through the village and we were walking along the lane by Millsdale's pond, fairly tired out by all of that thinking and pointing and performing of miracles. Uh, Mr. Fotheringay, I've just thought of another one. Oh, indeed, and what might it be? Uh, The village clock. uh, Listen to it now. Oh, it's terrible. Oh, that's true enough. It hasn't got a very melodious sound to it. Then let's give them a good clock, a great, rich, booming one, shall we? All right, Mr. Maydick. Uh... Let that there clock become a genuine London-style cathedral clock.
25: Oh, oh, oh. Oh,
20: that's much better. Much better. Oh, the people of this village are going to have a big surprise when they wake up in the morning.
21: After all we've done for them tonight. Well, I might say there's one or two things that we've done that I ain't so sure about, like... uh, turning every drop of alcoholic beverage into plain water for instance there's nothing to worry about mr fotheringay you can always turn out a miraculous pint or two for your own purposes and 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 it will reform all the drunkards in the village well perhaps so at any rate, we might as well wait and see what comes of it well what do we perform next i really don't know I can't think of another single miracle that we haven't all Half a moment, Mr. Maydick. Yes? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just thought of one of my own I'd better take care of. Oh? Yeah. Let Constable Winch be right back in San Francisco again. <laughs> See, he might be catching a boat or a train or something, you understand. I mean, I I thought the best idea is just to keep sending him back there every once in a while. Mm -hmm. No, I doubt that you have anything to worry about. San Francisco is some distance away, you know. I
12: I keep trying to think of one more miracle. A big one. Something worthy of ending the night with, but I... Oh, Uh,
21: well, now. I say... There is one, you know, oh, such as, you see that moon, Mr. Fotheringay. Well, naturally. Now I aren't a fool by the looks of it. Remember, Joshua. Joshua. Hey, Joshua. Oh, now come off it now. <laughs> it would be a wondrous thing to see well now that's a pretty tall order making the moon stand still actually it only appears to stand still what really happens is that the the earth stops rotating but i think we'd better not go monkeying around with the universe
20: well you probably don't have the power to do it anyway it's really a superior class of
21: miracle you know oh i've Um, got the power all right but i'm not so sure it's a good idea i could do it if i wanted to oh, oh yes yes of course you could well perhaps we'd better get along home well i do now i i might just leave it stopped for a little while if, if you could stop it at all oh well now if that's the way you feel you just take a look at this earth the whole blinking world Stop rotating. (laughs) Here now. What's all this? I I didn't order no wind. Fotheringar, what have you done? I don't rightly know. Look out, things are starting to blow loose. You confounded, blundering idiot. Duck your head. Here comes the Lord Mayor's sheep. (laughs) Duck yourself. Here comes the Lord Mayor. (laughs) Oh, you better lie down in the ditch before we get blown away oh it's getting worse all the time i can't see to pull my wits together oh i got it when the earth stopped rotating everything on the surface kept right on moving five six hundred miles an hour houses cows the wind everything it's a scientific principle a lot of good that does stop it man do something it's a medic Oh, Mr. Maidick! Oh, me if he ain't blown clean away! Gone! Oh, now I've got myself a fine, into a fine kettle of fish for certain. If, if only there weren't so much confusion, perhaps I could... Oh, well, that's it. It's, it's the only answer. All right, now. Let, let nothing happen until I say the word go. And when I do, let everything go back exactly like it was just before I turned that blooming lamp upside down to the long dragon bar. And at the same time, let me lose this here miraculous power complete-like. Just forget all about it. You got it now? Everything just as it were, no more miracles. Just let me forget the whole thing. All right, then?
23: You ready? Go! That's only what you say.
21: And the same as anybody else might say who's got the least bit of scientific knowledge inside of their thicker heads. Aren't I right, Constable Winch?
20: Uh, couldn't rightly say, Mr. Fotheringay. The subject ain't exactly in my province, you know. Mm. Neither are the
24: same, as Bridges. Roger, Constable Winch.
21: Irregardless, Mr. Beamish, Miracles ain't possible. Uh, so you say. Perhaps you don't even know what a miracle is. Perhaps if I was to point my finger at that lamp there on the bar and tell it to turn upside down, I suppose you think it might do it. Well, I wouldn't say it would. not You wouldn't say it would, not Mr. Toddy Beamish. You haven't got a brain in your head. And I'm only wasting my time trying to enlighten you. There you are, Miss Bridges. Thank you
24: kindly, Mr. Fotheringay.
21: I'll be dropping in again when the place ain't quite so crowded. And
20: so I bid you all a respectful... Good, a night. <laughs> well, Teddy, I'd say you got the best of the argument tonight.
24: Glory be, will you take a look at this? What's up, Miss Bridges? Sixpence. He left me sixpence right here on the bar, big as anything. And so we did. The luck of it ain't never happened before. Saints preserve us if it ain't a downright blooming miracle. That's what it is, a downright blooming miracle. Mm.
22: Under the direction of Norman MacDonald, Escape has brought you The Man Who Could Work Miracles by H.G. Wells, especially adapted for Escape by Les Crutchfield. Ben Wright was starred as George Fotheringay. Featured in the cast were John Daner, Lou Krugman, Eileen Erskine, and Wilms Herbert. The special music for Escape was composed and adapted by Del Castillo.
23: Next week. Escape with us to the windswept peak of Mount Everest and the story of a man who sacrificed everything to climb it. As Leonard Lee tells it in his gripping story, Conquest.
22: This afternoon, CBS presents a one-hour-long program for all who are wondering where the world is heading. It's called Challenge of the 50s, Years of Crises and it will feature Edward R. Murrow and Ted Outstanding CBS Correspondents. It follows immediately on most of these same CBS stations. This is Roy Rowan speaking. This is CBS, where you spend an hour with Frank Sinatra every Sunday afternoon on the Columbia Broadcasting System.
0: With quite a string of miracles to their credit, as Messrs. Forthingay and Maydig, that was Ben Wright and John Daner in The Man Who Could Work Miracles, escaped from December 31st, 1950. It was a good time for the Foley operator, turning out all those miraculous sounds, and radio was the perfect medium for bringing out all of those miracles, too. We're going to wrap it up for this year with a foray into the inner sanctum next here on Skywave Audio Theatre. What sort of holiday celebrations would you find in the inner sanctum anyway? Well, your host is always cheerful, at least, so that's something, although the things that make him cheerful are not exactly normal. As he might tell you, many of your problems are in your mind, which might be okay if your mind had a grip on reality. Especially important for a newspaper reporter, such as the one we're about to meet in Death Out of Mind. It's Inner Sanctum, from December 29th,
7: 1947. Good evening, friends of the Inner Sanctum. This is your host bidding you welcome through the squeaking door. Well, we're overcome with Yuletide spirits this evening. Parties everywhere. Ah, what fun. One fellow was lit up like a torch. His wife had struck a (laughs) match to him. Big shindig at the city morgue. Everybody was a little scared. Out in Hollywood, Frankenstein, Dracula, and the Wolfman threw a monster jamboree. The guests had a screaming good time. And the punch bowl. Mmm. Just like. Right. Chill to body temperature. Sub-zero. Everybody's
2: blood ran cold. <laughs> <laughs>
8: Tonight's Inner Sanctum Mystery, Death Out of Mind, was written by John Robert and stars Larry Haynes in the role of
11: Ed with Anne Shepard as Mary.
7: And now, gentle people, now for the soothing nuances of Shrieks in the Night. Say, ever see the little man who wasn't there? No. Carefully, right behind you. We're in apartment 2A of a cheaply furnished flat in Chelsea facing the street. The room is pitch dark. A patch of moonlight is crusted on the window as if it can't get through the grime. Ed Tate is crouched at the window watching the street. His face
11: Mary?
26: Ed, there's nobody downstairs.
11: Well, there must be. I've seen them. Here, here, here from the window. See? See, Sandoz? There, leaning, leaning against the lamppost, smoking a cigarette. I, I, I've been watching him, Mary. I can't take my eyes off Ed, him.
26: Ed, you've got to take hold of yourself.
11: Leave this room. He'll be waiting for me wherever I go. He'll be everywhere waiting for me.
4: <laughs>
11: Turn a corner and run into him. Catch a train and he's sitting beside you. Run away and meet him in Boston, Frisco, Hong Kong. Ed, don't,
26: please.
11: He's fate. Fate dressed in a black suit.
26: Please, no more wild talk.
11: I'm, I'm crazy. Is that what you mean?
26: Ed, darling... We're just married. I'm a bride. We were going to be something wonderful.
11: <laughs> you married a guy with whams in his head. Marriage never had a chance. You got a stacked deal, Mary.
26: I'll get help. Operator, I want the police. Operator. Operator. There's no buzz. The line's dead. Mm-hmm
11: cut the wires. I told you it was downstairs. can not
26: stand any more of this.
11: Oh, Mary. <laughs> Mary, don't cry over me. Forget <laughs> me. Just turn time back 24 hours and forget you ever married me.
26: But you've done nothing. It's just in your mind.
11: This is a payoff for other things. <laughs> it is always a payoff waiting somewhere. There's always Retribution. And you get away, Mary. This door. No. I'll wait for Santa alone. I don't want him coming to you. And he doesn't. Take exist. the back staircase and hurry. I'll get a doctor. You're sick. Beat
4: it. Beat it. Beat it. Beat it.
11: He's come. He knocks on my door. Two, you can't get away. Three, open the door. (laughs) So simple, Dad. No fuss, no ways to talk. Just one, two, three. Open up. Okay, Santo, I'm not running away. I'm opening up. Sergeant. Sergeant, Sergeant, I'm Head Tate. I just killed a man. Here's a gun. (coughs) This guy's sick. Call an ambulance. It's been six hours, Doctor. I hate to push, but how much longer? Well, it's futile being a district attorney now, Kittredge. The prisoner's a very sick man. Just a few questions. Useless. His memory is gone temporarily. Who is he? Ed Tate, reporter on leave from the bulletin. He was released from a sanitarium less than two weeks ago. Here's a complete report on it. Mm. On his way from the station house to the hospital, Tate kept insisting he'd murdered a killer named Santo. But he did murder him. Oh, he did that all right. But to the best of the department's knowledge, there never was a killer named Santo. How long before he can answer questions? Days, maybe weeks. The department can't wait that long. If we tried narcosynthesis, a compound popularly known as truth serum. Get started, Doctor. Murder can't wait. Eight. Yes. Count backwards. Starting at 100. 100. 99. 98. Ninety-nine. Tell us all about it, Tate. All about it? The sanitarium? Yes, about the sanitarium. You were there, in Harbor Hospital. You were released two weeks ago. You went there from your newspaper. Why did you go to the sanitarium, Tate? Stella Andrews killed herself. I couldn't get her out of my thinking, get her out of my head. Who was Stella Andrews? She... She figured in an unsolved murder mystery 20 years ago. I, I dug the story up and put it back on the front page. Yes, I... I remember the case, Tate. Stella Andrews was tried for murder and acquitted. They set her free. You uncovered new evidence? No, no, no. I did it as a circulation start to sell papers. I, I didn't think of Stella Andrews. I didn't think... Go on, Tate. I I never even met her until that last day. What happened that last day? Stella Andrews confronted me in my office. A gray, tragic woman. She told me that she'd long ago changed her name. That she'd made a new life for herself. Until this notoriety started suspicions in the minds of her neighbors. She said she was too old to make a new life for herself all over again. And then... Yes, Dave. I turned away in, in shame, despising myself. And then she was gone. 20 stories to the sidewalk. An innocent woman paid the supreme penalty. I was her accuser, her judge and jury. I was a murderer. Go on, Dave. Well, after that, I I, I couldn't sleep. I I couldn't work. I wound up in the sanitarium. And then? Well, uh, on my release, I tried to forget Stella Andrews. lying crushed on the sidewalk. I tried to get back in stride. I tried to kick myself there. Wouldn't be a payoff somewhere for what I'd done. I tried marriage. I tried to sweet kid into partnership in the accounting I owed fate. What did you do, Dave? I eloped with Mary Connor, a public librarian. For me, Mary had the kind of magic that that makes pain disappear. I'd only known her for a whirlwind week, but long enough to know she was gold through and through. We were motoring back from Elkton just married...
26: Happy. Mm. What time is it uh,
11: is? Minute past midnight.
26: I've been Mrs. Edward Tate for four hours. I'm
11: hungry. Well, coffee do me fine, too. Uh, keep lookout for a road stand, huh?
26: There's one right ahead. Oh.
11: Mm. Funny-looking joint. <laughs> fine place for a wedding
26: supper. It's the Ritz, darling. Hamburgers like filet mignon. <laughs> Come on, my mouth's watering. <laughs>
11: It was a beat-up cardboard shack. The kind that generally bloom in June, grab some tourist change, and then fade in October. A sign outside read Joe's Barbecue. The inside was gloomy. Uh, well, let be, folks. Two hamburgers. And coffee. Uh, coffee first. No hamburgers. I'm out of meat. Oh, well, what have you got? Eggs, ham and Swiss. Ham and Swiss. And toast the bread, huh? Yeah, make it two. Yeah, Okay. We were half through sandwiches as tasteless as sawdust when the door opened behind us. The night air set a chill over me.
4: Like a premonition.
11: A man came in out of the night. I stared at the newcomer as if magnetic fingers were drawing me to him. He was dressed in the devil's black. Black so worn it had a satiny sheen. And his face was hard and bitter and evil. No, just eggs and ham and Swiss, mister. Hey, what... What's the gun for? One guess. Oh, you ch- Sure, I can guess. Hurry. Okay. It was a black flat of an automatic. Your wallet, mister. I got my wallet and dropped it out on the counter. The chef was stalling over the register. I could tell by the sudden rigidity in his back that he was reaching for a gun. I wanted to scream, warn him not to, but my throat muscles were... <laughs> I watched the chef double over. I watched the gunman vault the counter and bear in for the kill. Ah! Mary's hand closed over mine and pulled that. Ed, quickly. I was through the door and running for the car on someone else's feet with Mary pulling at my sleeve.
4: Ed, hurry. Yes, yes.
11: We were moving when the killer reached the door and fired. It. The shots were lost in the night. We left him silhouetted in the doorway. A dark centennial guarding the tomb. Moon shafts touching his automatic. He made it look phosphorescent. The Manhattan skyline was blinking at us before we dared trust our voices. Anyone behind us?
26: No. It was a car, but it turned off.
11: (sighs) Jolly honeymoon.
26: We'll forget it. We'll just not remember it.
11: Did you watch him, there?
26: No, I couldn't.
11: How relentlessly he moved in for the kill. How exquisitely cold and efficient like a machine. Ed, it's
26: unhealthy. That, that sort of talk. I
11: couldn't take my eyes off him. I, I felt as if he were part of me come to life. A blood twin showing me to myself.
4: Darling, Demonstrating please.
11: to me what I really was. A killer cold and efficient no, like a machine. No, no, he no, no. He killed that man like I killed Stella Andrews. His instrument was a gun. Mine was a typewriter. He used bullets. I used words. But our methods were the same. Deliberate, ruthless, murderous. Ed. Forget him. We'll see him again, my blood twin. He's my conscience. Come to life.
26: We're going to report this to the police. No, we're not. Why?
11: I'm. I'm afraid of him.
26: But he's a complete stranger. What have we got to fear? We'll never see him again.
11: We'll see him again, Mary. He'll come calling.
26: But we're... Ed, the wallet. He has your wallet.
11: We're not strangers to him, Mary. He'll be calling on us. He had my wallet, my name, my whereabouts. But the wallet was only an incidental thing. I knew he'd call. Our lives were intertwined. Somehow he was now as much a part of my life as the... as the ghost of Stella Andrews. We reached home. We just sat around and waited. And soon the phone rang. Ed. It's him. What do we do? Answer the phone, I guess. Yes? Ed Tate, yes. Yes. I understand.
26: What did he say?
11: I'm, uh, I'm to come to the street.
26: Ed, you won't. He won't harm me,
11: he said. If I don't come down, he's coming up, he said.
26: What does
4: he want? I
11: I don't know. I'll go see. He was waiting for me in a big car that looked like a hearse. As I came out of the hall, he motioned me to come sit beside him. The car nosed east toward the river. He didn't talk. He just concentrated on driving. We were close enough for me to touch him. But I wasn't frightened. I felt as if we belonged to each other. Where are we going? To the river. What for? To dump him. Him was a gesture behind us. I turned to look. There was a packing truck on the floor in the rear of the car. Jeff's corpse. You're going to kill me, too? Why should I? To shut me up. We'll dump the trunk together. That'll shut you up. Well, wouldn't killing me be simpler? See if you shut up, it's just the same, maybe. Um. What's your name? You get an idea. No. No, I, I, I just want to know you very much. Santo. Yes, Santo We stopped along a deserted wharf Just under the Brooklyn Bridge And there, with the world asleep and the moon looking on We dumped a truck It sank slowly Twisting in tortured slow motion You can go home now, Tate Don't you feel it, Santo? Feel what? This, This kinship We're the same person, Santo You're crazy No, no, I mean it Look at me Look at me. See our resemblance? We we didn't just happen together. You're something out of me. You are me. You talk too much, Tate. Maybe I'll have to kill you after all. Oh, you'll, you'll kill me, Sato, soon enough. You'll have to kill me. You're my conscience. At home, we just stayed in, Mary and I. Staring emptily at each other. It was a honeymoon like a wake. Morning came, the day passed. We did nothing, just sat imprisoned. And then that night, I knew Santa would come. This time for keeps. I knew it by the way my flesh was floating in sweat. Fear was consuming me. Mary, Mary, Santa's downstairs. It's all in your mind. He's downstairs, he'll be coming up. Mary, where are you going?
26: To see. Ed, I can't stand much more of
11: it Yeah, yeah, you go see And when you come back, signal, like this Do it twice Mary went down to check, but I knew the answer I I got my gun and went to the window to watch and wait Sando was downstairs Sando was downstairs When he came up I killed him We know the rest, Tate now you must sleep. sleep. Sleep? Yes. Balmy is a March Hare. Right, Doctor? Well, it suggests a vivid hallucinosis induced by his guilt feelings about this Stella address. Uh, this man he killed, did you identify him? Got a report on it a moment ago. A man named Jenkins. He was the building superintendent. <laughs> This Santo, then, just existed in Tate's imagination. Ah, fate dressed in a black suit. It's an interesting hypothesis, A uh, Big headache to me. Oh, Daly, get those notes typed up. Have the department investigate every last detail immediately. Mrs. Tate's in the next room, Doctor. Do you want to listen in? Very much, Kittredge. Oh, uh, Mrs. Tate, this is Dr. Thorpe. How is he, Doctor? I'm recommending his immediate return to a mental hospital. Mrs. Tate, your husband just told us a long story. I'll have to ask you some questions for the record. Yes. You were just married? Yes. Motoring back from Elkton, did you stop at a road stand for refreshments?
26: No. We came straight to our apartment.
6: And
11: then what?
26: He began behaving queerly. He locked us in. We just sat all night. All the next day. The second night, Ed took a gun out of his valise. He stood guard at the window. He said he was waiting for a santo.
11: Did you ever see this santo? No. What brought the janitor up at that hour of the night?
26: Ed was raving insanely. I suppose he came to investigate the noise. Can I go, Mr. Kittredge?
11: No, not right now. You'll have to stay a while, just routine. My men will be reporting back, and i want you to read your husband's statement and then make one of your own. You can bark on the bench, grab 40 winks.
4: Yeah, I think
11: I'll doze off myself. Pick your own chair, doctor. <sighs> oh, Kittred speaking. Yeah, wait like get a pencil. Okay. Yeah, I got it. I got it. Keep talking. Okay. Report's coming in, Kittredge. Yes, Doctor. Uh, Explain this. There was a road stand called Joe's Barbecue. My men found it, all boarded up. Yeah. Tate probably noticed it while driving and wove it into his hallucination. Uh, Mrs. Tate... Mr. Tate. Yes? Did your husband leave the apartment at all last night before the shooting?
26: He might have while I was asleep.
11: Why do you ask that question, Kittredge? Because my men fished a packing trunk out of the East River. What was in the trunk? Cement. Bags of cement. What's the medical slant on that? Only perplexity, Kittredge. Kittredge. You know, I've got a new theory, Doctor, since we're hypothesizing. Well, what is it? That Tate's zany story was true, the whole of it. That the chef and Santa were real. That the whole thing was staged to play on Tate's emotional instability, drive him crazy. Then drive him to actual murder by sending that janitor up those stairs. Uh, like all police theories, too incredible for me. Uh, Mrs. Tate, can you help us out? Give us uh, an idea about that trunk?
26: no. Ed was irrational, capable of anything.
11: When he barricaded himself in the room with a gun, why didn't you call the police?
26: I did. But... But what? The wires
11: were cut. An odd touch for you, Doctor. The man who wasn't there cut the telephone wires. Extraordinary. Cut the wires inside the apartment. Fate dressed in black. Do you like black, Mrs. Tate? I do. Black worn to a satiny sheen. Do you always wear a satiny black, Mrs. Tate? I prefer it,
26: Mr. District Attorney.
11: Good heavens, Kittredge, what do you say? You were Mary Connor when you got married?
26: Yes.
11: Who were you, Mary Connor, before you began masquerading as fate? Mary Andrews.
7: Stella Andrews was my mother. Say, want to get married? Hmm? Okay. May all your troubles be, little ones. Confuse chap, that Ed Tate. Hmm. Three on a honeymoon. Mister, that's asking for trouble. In fact, wouldn't you say it's sort of crowding your lot? Mm. And that little man who was there, popping in and out of Ed's mind. You know, if it was me, I'd have started charging him rent. <laughs> <laughs> Good night. Pleasant dreams.
4: Mm.
0: (laughs) What some reporters will do to sell a few papers. Well, that's what yellow journalism was all about, but black would be the operative color in Death Out of Mind, The Inner Sanctum from December 29, 1947. A mother and daughter story with more than a dash of revenge. And on that cheerful note, we'll leave it for this week and for this year. I'm Norman Gilliland. Happy New Year. Join me in the New Year if you can. We'll have Hopalong Cassidy and also The Whistler, among others. Join me then if you can for Skywave Audio Theatre.